0: Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. Episode one one five tonight. Our guest is George Goldoff. I'll get him on the phone. George is 27 years young, and he's logged many experiences: junior tennis, college tennis, pro tennis. That our listeners will benefit from. Not not chicken liver as far as his background. I did a little homework. At junior tennis, 2013, he was number two in tennis recruiting. He won the 18 Winter Nationals. He was the finals 18 National Clays. College, he played for the Longhorns. At one point in his career, he played number one in the lineup. He also had wins over the number one and number two players in the nation when he was a Longhorn. Pro tennis. Uh, we talked to him about pro tennis. Certainly interrupted by the pandemic. He um, got to be 357 in the world. Uh, I know in 2019, he won six doubles titles with... So he's coached juniors college. He was at Baylor. I believe he was in Baylor. I was there. I um, just want to hesitate for one second. I believe Baylor lost in the finals when he, one of the the years that he was uh, on the coaching staff. Currently he's uh, teaching tennis at Brookhaven in Dallas with Dave Anderson, who we've had on as a guest and he's planning on getting back to play some, but let me get him on the phone. Uh, Lots of things we can talk about. Junior tennis, college tennis, pro tennis his connection with us. Let's see here. My phone skills are always in question, but we got it going. Here we go. Hello, George Goldoff. Welcome to the great base tennis podcast. Thanks for being our guest.
1: Thanks for having me. Steve. I'm excited. Yeah.
0: Let's talk tennis. Um, Let's do it. I went through a few things. Uh, your background. Now it's not chicken liver here. You were number two in a class of 2013. That's almost 10 years ago. Tennis number two in tennis recruiting. Yep. One winner nationals finals in clay nationals. Played for the Longhorns. Played one at one time in your career. and wins over number one and two in the nation. Pro tennis 357 singles. Won six doubles in 2019. All good. Repeating myself, but tell us a little bit about your beginning days in tennis.
1: Sure. Well, uh, I moved to Mississippi at the age of about seven and, you know, I just one of those things where my family, uh, we joined a small club and, uh, you know, I started tennis with my dad and we both really didn't have any background, especially my dad. And we popped in a couple, uh, Videos. I, I'm blanking. I know that one of them was the Andre Agassi and Nick Bollettieri uh, instructional videos. I, I'm totally blanking on the name of it. I, I watched it whenever I was at Happy Lane. No, I And um,
0: Will, you're referring to he's, wearing where he's wearing his bright orange and. and oh yeah.
1: There's a one of
0: why there's neon. Right. I, th- I always think of him uh, hitting a high arcing ground stroke and saying that's an offensive shot because. Next ball ball is coming back short. How how old were you in Mississippi when you started?
1: I started at about eight and a half or nine, about nine, I'd say nine. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where I I played a a good bit with my dad and, you know, my dad trained me and I played a bunch of other sports as well. Um, The opportunities to hit, weren't terrible i mean i'd hit at a public park or i'd hit at the club and you know there's a small community where you know you could always my dad was uh was always trying to find me hits you know i'd hit with anybody and uh the main hit though was the ball machine because my dad and i couldn't rally with each other <laughs> in the beginning so we would just take turns on uh, the ball machine and um during weekends we would be out there from around 8 to 11 and then we'd go track and then um, during the weekdays I was so excited to play that I wanted to be able to play more that we'd wake up pretty early where I'd wake my dad up at around five thirty to go out there and get a solid hour and a half in before I'd go back home eat a little food and then go to school um, just to squeeze in a couple more hours in but you know, it's just one of those things. You're in Mississippi, and uh, I was telling uh, Dave Anderson a little bit whenever I first got to uh, Brookhaven here in Dallas that I think I had about 15 to 20 people in the section <laughs> Mississippi, in Mississippi and the uh, USTA ranking. So, and now it's for the 10s, 10s or twelve, yeah, the 10s division. So, it was one of those I, – I didn't really notice it. I was just having fun. Um, I loved it. I uh, just loved hitting balls and I was lucky to where uh first coach was uh, an Ole Miss, uh, former, former player at Ole Miss, uh, Nick Baroni. So he was my, uh, I guess the first coach, you know, first coach I had outside of my, my father. And um, he made the, I think he was perfect for me at that time where he really fostered my enjoyment for the game. And uh, while my dad <laughs> was a little bit more of the hammer and, uh, which was good as well. Um, definitely nothing, no workouts will ever be tougher than some of those Saturday morning workouts. <laughs> we go uh, ball machine for three hours and we go straight to the track. And, uh, man, those were, those were some long Saturdays. But um, eventually, you know, moved to Tennessee. And, uh, you know, Memphis has a lot of, a lot of uh, great clubs. You know, there's a lot of private schools with some great players, but uh, I I was a little bit removed from that where my family would uh, take me to hit at some of the clubs, the Racco Club of Memphis, whenever it was still open every once in a while. But that was about a 45-minute one-way commitment for uh, my family, and my sisters would have to come, and that was never easy, especially for them. And, you know, I eventually started hitting with uh, Benjamin Donovan, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. I know that... Uh, He uh, was training with you, especially during his time at Cal Poly. And so we would hit at a uh, high school uh, with a couple other players. And we do that about three to five times a week. We try to find time and, you know, get an hour and a half in. And it, it wasn't terribly structured, but, you know, we were still hitting and, you know, it was still, you know, still solid practice, you know, for what I knew at that time. And uh, so, just to fast forward, it was one of those things where my my tennis game wasn't really progressing to the point where you know by the time I was knocking on the door of high school that, uh, is this really gonna be a way for me to get into a school scholarship wise or even me competing in college? I wasn't even thinking about it like that, but you know my parents that you know they they had done everything for me, you know they'd do anything for me, and you know they were saying, you know. I got triple crowns. And so the triple crown is whenever you lose first round of singles and back draw singles and you lose in doubles. And it was the gate. I remember the tournament too. It was the gateway, uh, uh, just a tournament in St. Louis. And then I got triple crowned again in Louisville. So I lost, I think around six matches in a row. And I just remember, you know, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this, <laughs> you know, and it was a difficult time. And, there was some real questions that had to be answered. Where, you know, do I continue playing tennis? Because financially, I mean, is this more of an activity or is this a sport that I'm actually going to pursue? And um, I'd spent a summer, at a uh, couple weeks at a summer camp in Texas at the John Newcomb Tennis Ranch, and it was one of those things where my parents were like, you know what? How about this? You you go for one semester, and you see where it goes, but you have one semester and, you know, there has to be significant ranking improvement or, you know, it was kind of implied And I was like, well, you come back and, you know, you can still play high school tennis and you focus on school. You still play, or, you know, I was playing violin at the time. <laughs> and So you come back and focus on those things. And so I left and I was about around 14 and a half that I left for Texas.
0: Let me back up when you, when you grew up in Memphis, uh, they had the pro tournament. Did you get a chance to see the pros when they came to town every year?
1: Oh yeah, I got. I got the ball boy. Those are the best seats in the house. Um, I really enjoyed it. That was some. I wasn't thinking about it just from the standpoint of I like, can't believe I'm on the court. You know, with do it You know, Saffin was there, and it was just really cool to see that type of tennis, you know, up close and personal. Um, it, you know, it's you're you're a little bit anxious because you know these are guys you watch on tv and then they're right in front of you and the ball speed you know and everything the shots they are coming up with the physicality it was just something that for me i i didn't get a chance to really see that or i had no exposure to that so for me to see that let alone be on the court it was uh it was really awesome it was a it was a cool tournament it was a cool tournament and i really really enjoyed that experience
0: no it's too um, bit too bad for memphis that uh they no longer had the tournament. They had the tournament. I'm going to guess twenty plus years.
1: Right. I mean, it was a it was an established tour event. And did they move that to uh, Long Island? Is that where they reestablished that? Uh, I'm not sure if they moved it to New York.
0: Yeah, they moved it to Long Island,
1: and then they just moved it to uh, San Diego. So they uh, yeah. So that's on. Un- that was unfortunate because I know that the community really rallied behind that. But I guess it, in terms of reaching the bottom line they just weren't, they just weren't hitting the bottom line. But, uh, anyway, so I guess I moved out to Texas and I, I, uh, just one of those things, it was such a shock, you know, I lived at home and never really was away from home longer than maybe a week and a half or two weeks whenever I was at a summer camp, you know, at Nukes. And, uh, just immediately I I kind of had a sense of urgency where I knew that I I loved the sport, but I had no real exposure from the standpoint of um, what it would be like to have a full training schedule and, you know, train five hours a day, you know, and balance that with, um, you know, footwork or strength and conditioning, what have you. And also with online school, that was completely foreign to me. But, I knew I really loved the game, like I really enjoyed playing tennis, and you know I just kind of told myself let's go let's go all in let's go all in for you know this semester, and I'll do whatever i gotta do and then if if I'm really not that good and I can't do it, then it is what it is, but I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I remember going to uh Phil Henry, who was at nuke he was a uh, he was my coach whenever I was there and I just said, I'll do whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I literally, I have one semester to do this and I'll, I'll do whatever, but I'm behind. (laughs) Were
0: were, were, were you a freshman in high school?
1: I was a freshman in high school. And I was just like, I, have you know, he's I mean, what a guy, I mean, just intense positivity and just, you know, push, you know, pushes everybody. I mean, he just pushes it. I mean, you see Phil running up the hills in New Braunfels. I mean, you, you can't help it go a thousand percent up that hill because you know that he's given 10,000 percent uh I,
0: I've never met Phil but I've certainly heard his name and I know he's still there yeah
1: he's still there yeah he's still at uh he's still at nukes but he uh you know I just remember and he he pushed me really hard and I responded you know I just was like I have no choice I that was kind of my mentality at that point was I really have no choice but I want to keep on playing tennis and honestly. um it was one of those things where I ended up, you know, really falling in love with it and, um, it made some improvements. You know, I went from hitting maybe about four hours of, about four to five hours a week, maybe five hours a week at most to maybe hitting at least four hours a day. I mean, at least four hours a day and doing some sort of physical conditioning two hours a day. So I, I really improved quickly and it was really noticeable on my end where that's what was really motivating for myself was we uh, we were playing more than anything what gave me confidence was we my results in practice so then whenever i would go to the tournament i i kind of had an idea of what i could do but still had no idea what what was going on just you know just trying to work as hard as i could every day and um you know miss my family a ton but um really you know, they were still there to support me, but I really was starting to fall in love with the game, <laughs> basically.
0: Um, your recollection, was uh, Newcomb ever around when you were there?
1: John Newcomb? Yes. Yeah, he would come back every once in a while, and uh, he'd, you know, he'd come out and talk maybe once a year. And, uh, man, it was, <laughs> it was so funny because, you know, he's like a deity. You know, you see him, and Roy Emerson was there as well, I think, visiting. And uh, they're up there talking, and I've you know, one time I remember he came out and watched briefly. I remember him passing by whenever I was hitting volleys. And, um, I can't repeat exactly what he said, but, uh, it was in front of basically everybody in the Academy. And he was like, Hey, you, Hey, (laughs) Hey, you, you know, whoever he's pointing at me. He's like, yeah, you're hitting volleys like this. And, um, basically, yeah, I'd love to give you the exact quote, but, (laughs) I couldn't say it. He kind of let it fly, and everybody's like, "Whoa!" And he's like, "You hit your volleys like you know, like a like a baby." You I can't do it like a baby, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, oh no!" He saw that. <laughs> he saw that, but he was uh, he had insane energy, and um, you know, it was one of those things. He wasn't around a ton, but he did have a presence around the academy. And unfortunately, my only experience with him was him beating up on my volleys a little bit. But to be fair, they. They probably deserved it. But,
0: uh... No, he was uh, a fantastic player. What what a great logo. But, uh... But, yeah. Um... Just, uh, The Australian legends. He's certainly one of them. In Emerson. Yeah.
1: They were, I mean... Even they, they would come out and, uh... If he... Whenever they were here, they would sometimes just tap a couple volleys around or they'd hit a little bit. And it's still so impressive how... I mean, they've... Obviously the movement is a little bit compromised, but the hands and just the feel and just the smoothness, I mean, it's it's so impressive even at that age, you know, they're still or they they were able at that time to still hit the ball the way they did.
0: Was it mostly Texas players or players from all over the country, all over the world? It was
1: mostly mostly Texas players. There were some players from Australia. I mean you had some international players and so that's where, in terms of exposure, I mean, to go from, you know, Memphis where it's you know Ben Donovan and I, you know, at a park with a couple other players, to you know, literally being maybe the twentieth twentieth uh, ranked player, you know, in a in a dorm. I thought that that really motivated me in terms of a from a competitive standpoint, and uh, you have players from all over the place coming in different game styles and you know different approaches, different backgrounds. So it was definitely a kind of just baptism by fire. (laughs) Just getting beat up, you know, for the first two months. I mean, just getting beat, you know, every single day badly.
0: (laughs) Well, Ben Donovan was a good player, but I I think hitting having 20 players to hit with uh, is always a big bonus. How long were you at Nukes?
1: I was at Nukes for exactly two, two school years. So about a year and a half. And then, um, you know, I, I eventually got to the point, so I think my, I had never played a level one, level two national. I didn't really have a national rank, but by the time I, about a year and a half later, I, I was at the sixth seed at Kalamazoo. And I really kind of, I had no idea, you know, what that even, what that even meant. So I was just like, oh, I guess, you know, you're just playing tournaments. You just You know, you're just playing and, you know, this is just, you know, this is pretty cool <laughs> but i had no idea the history and then i remember jack stock was the uh, one seed in 18s that year and he was up there and so that was that was a cool moment i think that whenever i think a year and a half later whenever i kind of started getting some national results and improving from that standpoint and i was like oh maybe i could go to college you know for this and uh, maybe i could earn a scholarship and uh so that was about towards the end The end at uh, nukes for me was about a year and a half. And it was one of those things where it was really expensive to travel to tournaments. Maybe not expensive, but in terms of distance traveled to play tournaments, I think I was playing about uh, maybe less than one tournament a month just because uh, the Super Champs, so in New Braunfels, uh, there could be a Super Champ in Abilene. That could be about a six-hour drive seven-hour drive and that could just be for the weekend and then you could have another one in uh in dallas that's three and a half hours away you know it's just spread out all over the place and i thought that you know i knew that there were holes in my game and i knew that I'd, i needed to find somebody who could help me out because i i really was just relying on running around the court grinding and i i knew that my ceiling wasn't high enough and i needed to make some technical changes. And, you know, honestly, I, I moved out to California and met Jimmy Johnson. I, I went and hit at, a, you know, at the advantage tennis Academy with Jimmy Johnson whenever I took a trip out to Easter bowl. And, um, you know, my dad had a vision where, you know, if I go out to Southern California, I'd be able to compete against really good players every single weekend, you know, and play men's opens. And, um, you know, that was just a, Texas was in was a hundred percent a hotbed at that time. There was a lot of really great juniors, but during that time, Southern California was, uh, there's just a insane density of players. And you could, I mean, if you're willing to drive, you know, max 45 minutes to an hour, you could play whatever tournament you wanted. And I think that's what my dad saw and met Jimmy and Jimmy, uh, was the first one to introduce me to a little bit of the, uh, great base curriculum and information, you know, for in terms of grip swing body. And uh, first thing he did, you know, whenever I, I got there to California was, uh, we moved my grip over from a full Western to a uh, semi-Western, you know, three and a half, we moved it over, you know, it was a tough, it was a tough change for me be, and it was a tough adjustment mentally because I don't think anybody ever had told me that, you know, and to go from, never thinking about anything like that to not hitting a live ball for about two months I mean that was like whoa what just happened <laughs> so it, it wasn't it was just kind of my that was just my experience you know I'd only really been training for a year and a half and the only thing I knew was really just going out there and hitting a ton of balls every day so that was an adjustment and I remember uh, so Orange Bowl I was at 16 and I thought I was going to play Orange Bowl and Eddie Hurd. and You know, Jimmy pulled me out. He said, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're forehand. You're going to go back and you're going to revert back. Trust me. That's where you're trying to go. You can't, you can't do that. You can't have that grip. And I, you know, my, my dad was like, Hey, that's what he's saying. That's what we're doing. And I was furious. (laughs) I was so mad. And, um, I couldn't see that, you know, I couldn't see beyond it at that moment. And, um, Funny, you know, funny enough, uh, February, you know, I played my first tournament in February. So it'd been about a few months and basically went on a, uh, went on a little bit of a tear for about a few months. I ended up winning two designated, uh, and then won a another tournament of my first national tournament. And then went on to clay court where I made the final within the span of about five months after the change. And, uh, You know, and then after that, I I played Kalamazoo and had some solid results. I unfortunately got injured and then played Winter Nets and ended up winning that. So it's one of those things where in hindsight, just the two months is really a drop in the bucket. It it really was a drop in the bucket, and I think that going back, even taking uh, a little bit of time here and there to work on other aspects of my game, but I'm going to be on, I mean, all fairness to Jimmy, I I was not easy to deal with. I was super stubborn and I, you know, we uh, definitely worked on some things with my volleys and my, my forehand, but I, I just wouldn't budge on a lot of other things. And that just goes to show the ignorance I had at least. But, uh, and then, yeah, the next year ended up getting my, I had no intention of, you know, I took, you know, no intention of even playing professionally and played a couple, uh, futures ended up getting my getting a win and a futures in Rochester over a couple players who were ranked and college players who are ranked inside of the top thirty. Again I had no idea what that meant. I was just going out there and competing and then ended up getting my first ATP point and I was like, Oh, what is that I had no idea even how to look up the guy's ranking and it was like, Oh, he's four hundred. Okay. I mean, you know, I, had, I just had no idea, but then I knew I played Jameer Jenkins the next round. He won NCAAs, and I, I lost one 3 He clipped me. I mean, he absolutely beat the brakes off me, and, um, you know, and that's whenever I was like, okay, well, I don't know what that means, but I guess people are telling me that's a good win. So I just kept on just trying to improve, and I think that kind of me not knowing or being around that or anybody saying you know, like, Hey, you need to focus on, you know, playing professional or you need to do this. That, that helped me in a way. Cause I was just like, all right, cool. Let's just go, let's just go keep on playing and competing. <laughs> um, but I, anyways, I, you know, I get to college and, uh, the college visits and, uh, it was narrowed down to a few schools and ended up, you know, committing, you know, took one trip and ended up committing to the university of Texas. I,
0: and, uh, um, I remember, uh, my recollection is, being out there to train the coaches weekend workshop. And you were there like on a Friday morning yeah. and then everybody left for a tournament. But then I was there a second time. And, you know, Billy Martin, uh, I think of Billy Martin is a legendary player when he was, yeah. when he was 15 using a Stan Smith wooden racket, Wilson wooden racket. He went five sets with Stan Smith at Forest Hills on grass, but he's a great, great player. But I remember sitting on a bench. It was, it was you and one of the other students from Jimmy's Academy
1: Joseph DeJulo, I think it was Joe because right. he was a uh, yeah.
0: He has a little brother. I know that. Uh, you know, shortly after, just like the next day, I was at I think a twelve and under tournament with his younger brother. But you, so you could have gone to UCLA, um, um, Texas.
1: I, you know, it was it was one of those things where uh, they had some early commits and uh, scholarship wise, I, you know, I had a lot of my friends went there and I you know, originally in a way, you know, I, you can even ask Jimmy to this day, it was one of those things where whenever I got to California, it's like, all right, let's, uh, we're going to use, you know, I'm my goal is to try to get there and get to UCLA. And that was kind of a school where I'd go to the matches and it was great for me to see college tennis and be able to drive up and watch, you know, the USC, you know, got to see Stevie Johnson play whenever he was, you know, on that streak. And, uh, see certain guys and see those, those dual matches up there at Westwood. And, um, but it was one of those things where I felt like I had, you know, my family had invested so much time, energy and resources into me. And, you know, I'd put a lot of time into this as well, that, you know, Texas, look at the end of the day, Texas was, I mean, to me, unbelievable. I mean, I, there's a reason I committed three, three days after my visit, I loved it. But I don't think I could have looked at my parents and, you know, been like, hey, you know, for two years, do you think we can, we can stomach, you know, 55, you know, I had just $55,000, you know, after all that time and working to be in a position to earn a scholarship. I think that would have been really tough to be well, completely well, I, honest. Well,
0: I think for our listeners, that uh, uh, not wanting to explain that all college scholarships are the same amount. I mean they vary they are in women's tennis where there is at the top PowerPoint right. conferences eight full, but uh why don't you just touch upon that the 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 sure. four point five and how the how that works.
1: Yeah, so uh the men have four and a half uh scholarships that uh that are divided amongst, you know, the team members, you know, while the women's team has uh eight full scholarships. So on the women's side, if somebody gets a scholarship, they get the full scholarship. You can't, uh, you can't divvy out the scholarship. So uh, for instance, on the men's side, I could have one full scholarship, but split that up amongst maybe a few players in terms of percentage points, things like that. Whereas if I give a player scholarship on the women's side, full scholarship, there's no, uh, there's no dividing up the eight. Um, so I think there's a, that's the big, that's a big difference. And on the, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. There's, inst- there's ways that you can, uh, as a college coach, you can, you know, whether it's academics, uh, there's a lot of schools have grants. Um, you know, a lot of what a lot of coaches are doing now is they'll tell a player, Hey, come in in January, you know, you can still, you know, you can still train, you know, go play tournaments, but, uh, come back and that would count as fifty percent roughly of a scholarship depending on the institution because it's half of a uh, full school year so, so the, there's, there's a lot of go ahead sorry no sorry go ahead what i was saying? just
0: gonna say so the scholarship in texas was just more substantial there was, you gotta, it
1: was more substantial but also i felt like i wasn't really sacrificing and at, the, at the end of the day i felt like austin was austin was a great city i knew i wanted to be in a big city um i had uh, personally I'd, I'd lived in uh since I was 14 and a half in a tennis academy and I I've really wanted to get experience and meet people outside of the tennis realm um I kind of want to just be thrown into a, a big environment I uh, knew some guys on the team at UT as well and um I was honestly I was also recruited by Ricardo Rubio and I, I really liked Ricky and uh I, I really like center as well. And I, I just immediately, uh, got to the campus and I felt like, yeah, I a thousand percent could see myself here. So I want to be clear that whenever I say that, you know, it, it was a scholarship, it wasn't a scholarship thing, but to me, it was just interesting where I felt like the whole time I was in California, it was like, yeah, I want to stay here. And then I took my trip. And after visiting, I was, it was just like, this is a, this is where I want to be. You know, this is where I want to be. And, uh, and with
0: Texas, uh, you mentioned, uh, coach center, Michael center, who, who were the coaches you, during your four years there?
1: Right. So my, uh, my first two, my first year, it was Michael center. Um, the assistant coach was, uh, Ricardo Rubio. Our volunteer was Alex Rafi, And then, uh, my, my sophomore year, it was, uh, head coach, Michael Center, Ricardo Rubio, and then the volunteer, actually, believe it or not, it was uh, Bruce Burke. Uh, funny turn of, you know what I mean? Uh, he came from Michigan. Uh, he, so that he, was, he was that was coach. amazing. Where he was a head coach for about, I'm 11 or 12 years. And before, so that, that, was, before
0: that, he was at Illinois. So, yeah, he's uh, very well yeah. credentialed to be a volunteer.
1: I mean, it it was, I mean... It was something. It was something else where we were like, "You're Bruce Burke, Bruce Berg, the head coach at from from Michigan." The guy he also was at Illinois. That, whoa! And so that to us was was pretty incredible. And he was an amazing resource, you know, to have three coaches like that. Where sometimes the uh, volunteer position can be an absolute newcomer to coaching. You have a coach like Bruce who's been on uh, has. I mean, there's not many coaches with the resumes like that, with that type of experience or experiences, I should say. Um, and so then my, my junior year, it was, uh, it was coach center. Then, uh, was it Bruce at at the assistant position? And then Chris Camelon, a former, uh, former player. And that's the same, same coaching staff. That was my senior year as well. And, um, yeah, it was. It was just. It's amazing um, to see that. I mean, obviously, the thing that happened with Coach Center is. I mean, I mean, I can't. I couldn't even put it into words. Whenever that happens, and uh, to see how that whole twenty nineteen year panned out, I mean, it's. I mean, it's like a. It's just uh, surreal. I mean, bittersweet. I mean, sweet in so many ways. And.
0: Well, but, for our uh, listeners out. What what is it labeled? The scandal,
1: the Varsity Blues, or Varsity Blues, Varsity Blues. Yeah, I was. Uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty wild. I was on the court, and uh, this is the beginning of 2019, or the middle of 2019, I should say, spring. And uh, I was on court warming up for a match, and I'm in a group chat, and you know, there's there's a lot of nonsense going through there, and I I, I see somebody send a news article of a uh, Twitter post and I'm thinking, Oh, okay. This is somebody photoshopping something, you know, and putting, cause there's no way. And then I'm not kidding. Literally five, 10 minutes later, I see a, a ESPN notification of Varsity blues. And I read through the article and I, I see everything and I, I can't believe what I, I couldn't believe it. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things you reach out and, uh, no no answer and you just know that there's something going on and you know it was it was a really really dark time I mean not not I mean obviously for the program but you know we we were all more concerned for Coach Center. we just wanted answers of what was going on um but well, yeah I mean
0: do tell the list just, just briefly coach center he made a mistake what was the mistake and you know he did some jail time yeah. and, and where he is
1: now and yeah so there. he uh so he so he basically you know accepted money anonymously uh, they accepted money anonymous anonymously and had uh anonymously donated that money uh, to the program and uh you know you, but just under an illegal legal fashion basically and uh there was a 10 year FBI investigation of uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of different programs and departments all around the country from all divisions. And, uh, you know, he, he got caught up in that, uh, in that investigation. And, um, it's, you know, it was just really unfortunate. And, you know, he obviously made a, uh, made a poor judgment call, but I mean, I do not believe that that's an indictment of who he is because that's not the person that I do for, you know, the five years I was on campus and Austin, you know, and, uh, that's what I mean by, you know, we're all concerned and we were all concerned and, you know, we were all just reaching out cause we knew that, um, you know, that that's not an indictment. You know, he made a terrible decision, but that's not an indictment of who he is.
0: But he did. But, uh, he did serve some time, and now he's out. He did. And,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. He served. He served time, and um, he's coaching. had a really, really tough time. And obviously, he made it out. I'm happy that uh, you know everything is okay. And then he's uh, moved back to Kansas. That's my understanding.
0: So, yeah, uh, and he's teaching tennis in the private sector.
1: I believe so. Yes, that's the that's the last
0: thing. So I've that was the same year that. I thought you'd already graduated before that because it, then Bruce, Bruce so, Berkley, they won. Bruce was the assistant. He stepped up yeah. as the interim head coach. And so that was, that was, that
1: was a, right. Yes. That was in 2019. I uh, I just started playing in uh, about February of, of 2019, February, March. And uh, I graduated from school in 2018, oh. the spring of 2018. And then I went back, uh, went back to California to, uh, actually rehab. I had two torn labrums in my hips and, um, needed to go back and work. And, but mainly I, you know, I knew that if I wanted to give myself any close shot of, uh, on tour, I, I needed to rehab my hips and make sure that I could play, how much, you know, how about much,
0: how much playing time did you lose through injury, uh, in juniors and then in
1: college? Well, in in juniors, I, I really didn't, I had, you know, shoulder pain and I had, you know, some wrist issues, but I I really did not have any significant injuries, but in college, I, you know, I, I I really didn't, and even in juniors, I think it all builds up, but I really didn't take care of my body. I think the, the way I needed to, and you know, my, my freshman year, I, uh, I know exactly when it happened. I went for a return and I, felt this extremely sharp pain on the inside of my left hip and i just immediately collapsed i mean face planted off of a return and i was like that's that's not normal and it was diagnosed as hip tightness and it was just one of those things where you know i was like all right well i mean that makes sense i mean i'm not a <laughs> i'm not novak <laughs> I'm, I'm not the loosest guy ever and so um, to fast forward two to three years three years later i uh, I compensated so much in my right hip that the same thing happened. And, uh, at that point I got an MRI and, um, I had, I had to take some time off during some falls, but nothing really substantial. And so whenever the MRI came back and it was like, yeah, you got two torn labor. And that was a, that was a really tough pill to swallow because I felt like I, uh, was coming off of a great junior year. Um, are first full year where I was playing one and it was a really rough start, but I felt like I was finding my footing and, uh, finished strong, but I was right before all Americans. And it was, you know, I, you go from feeling like, you know, you can make, make a good run to my year might be potentially shut down. My whole last year of college tennis might, that might be it. So that was a really dark time just from the standpoint of, uh, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I think the, uh, the athletic training uh, department at UT uh, was pushing me for me to take a cortisone shot. And I think, you know, if I was a freshman, I probably would have just because it's like, I wanted to play so badly. But at that point I was like, I really don't know what kind of damage that would cause if I kept on pushing through and further damaging my hip. Um, I just, just looking down the line, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't have to, you know, get a hip replacement or anything like that. If I played through, you know, a full year and without any type of rehab, especially if I didn't feel the pain, I could imagine what it'd be like if I didn't feel the pain, the type of damage I'd be doing in that labral socket. And, um, you know, after talking to sorry, go ahead. I
0: was going to say the university of Texas, uh, is right up there one, two or three with largest athletic budgets. No, it, what was like, it, what was the support system as far as injuries was, uh, were you pleased with that? Oh,
1: I mean, I, I was, I was pleased with it. It was just one of those things where I think that they laid out all the options. They laid out all the options for me. And there was, I mean, you, in terms of the resources at your disposal, I mean, it's, it's pretty insane, you know, but I think for my situation, it was one of those things where I knew I didn't want to uh for a whole year. And um, if I did get surgery, that would shut down my, I mean, I would be out for about five to six months. I wouldn't be hitting a tennis ball for about three and a half to four months. Uh, if I get the cortisone shot, that would take care of the pain, but there's no promises in terms of how that would affect the, you know, the, the actual labor long term. Or I just go and try to play and just rehab everything around it the best I can and just strengthen the muscles around the hips and the back and every, And so I, I came to the conclusion where, you know, where I didn't want to make a decision immediately. And so I took about two months off and just did uh, rehab for that whole area. I didn't hit a ball. I, I mean, I just, one of those things where I, I just did everything I could, you know, I'd go into the, uh, I mean, I'd go into the, the basement we, we would call it the basement because it was at the, it was under the stadium and we would, just do rehab. You know, Terry would be with me every single day for like two hours. And we would just go to war with it every day, doing rehab exercises. And, uh, and then I, I even took it one step further where I just knew I, I it was one of those things again, where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to play again, but I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure that I'm going to give myself a shot. And I'd go back to my apartment and just keep on doing those exercises. You know, Marissa, my, my girlfriend, well, now fiance was just looking at me. I was like, dude, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? He's <laughs> doing these exercises nonstop. And, and um, you know, come about mid November, end of November, it was kind of like, all right, you know, it's either you start hitting now or there's just no shot. You're going to even play at this point. And so, went out and just built up from there, you know, just started the first day playing five, 10 minutes up the middle and then, you know, just keep on progressing, just well, Marissa, increase the time. Pardon?
0: Marissa, physical therapist, at that time, uh, how far along was she? In? field of expertise she
1: she was a junior she was studying she was taking uh, some anatomy some biology but she had a i mean n- not nearly the amount of information to where she knew i think what to do or the severity of the uh, the injury if that made sense
0: yeah
1: but uh but she was she was just worried that you know that i was setting myself like she's like dude you have two torn labrums you know i mean I was, you know maybe you need to you know, get the surgery get it repaired and then start playing again if you want to but for me I, I just I was, I was like well I'm too far gone I'm not going to be able to play in the season you know if I take four months off and then go middle of the year but um, but yeah so any, anyway just started playing a good bit in November and just was just trying to build my way back and you know, come January, I was starting to play actually quite decently and went out to a double header match against a UTSA first match. And I, I don't know, I just felt like I was playing on house money. I mean, I was definitely still on a lot of, you know, I would take like 10 ibuprofen and take Advil, you know, and just to make sure it was gold out a little bit, but I just went out there and played and ended up winning, I think like two and one or two and two. But for whatever reason, I just I just broke down. I just broke down for no reason. I mean, people around must have been looking at me like I was crazy. But uh, it was just one of those things where I I legitimately, like in the back of my head, I was like, there's no way. You know, whenever I first got injured, I I was like, there's no way I'm going to play a real college match again. And so whenever that happened, even though it was, you know, against UTSA on a, like a Wednesday afternoon, like maybe one person watching. I was just like, this is, I, I just, I was just totally, I mean, emotional. And, um, you know, Demitar Kotrovsky, who was a former player at UT, and uh, he was coaching the UTSA team, and he kind of had an idea of what I was, what I kind of gone through. I mean, he was nice enough in the middle of the dual match to come over, but at the end, he was like, all right, dude, like, come on, <laughs> get it together, brother. <laughs> you know, There's still a dual match, you know, go out and help out your teammates. And so that was that, but that was a cool moment. And, uh, you know, honestly, I, I played with a lot of pain that year. Um, I mean, there'd be certain mornings I, I couldn't really put my shoes on. Like, it would be really tough to, like, bend over. and So I would tie the shoes and just put them on. Uh, just kind of slide your foot through. But I felt like more than anything, I wanted my teammates to know that I wasn't just, you know, oh, sure, he's a senior and he's going to just play like, no, you can rely on me. I want you to, you know, I want my teammates to feel like whenever I'm out there, that I'm not a liability and I'm just going to get injured. So I felt like I, I did my best to, you know, really push through, push through and, you know, finish the year the best I could. And especially during outdoors, whenever I had had a couple more matches under my belt and a little bit more time, but uh, it was definitely, a, it was a tough year. I felt like my body took a by, by the end of the, uh, the season. I mean, it was, I was really banged
0: up. If you could turn the clock back, uh, would you have done it differently? Would you have had surgery? Would you have taken the redshirt year? And by the by the way, you know, let me just interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. But for our listeners, UT, SA, University of Texas, San Antonio. But would you have uh, done things differently?
1: No, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, in, in hindsight, it was one of those things where I, I just... I kind of just wanted to, I wanted to get done, but I think it was a little bit rushed where I think getting the medical red shirt um, would have been nice, but that would have included me getting surgery. And uh, you know, whenever you get the type of surgery that they were saying I should get, uh, and I spoke to a couple other people about it, uh, they're saying that the likelihood of you carrying it again, unless you take care of your hips, is actually higher. Um, so I guess a lot of it would have been up to me whether or not that would have happened. But I, you know, to be completely honest with you, if I, if I went back, I think I would have got the surgery cause I would have had time to, uh, to rehab because here's the thing. I had a whole nother, uh, I had a whole nother semester of school. So I would have had time, but to me, in the back of my head, I wanted to be able to compete in my, in my last uh, spring season where I don't think I would have had that opportunity if I were to stay another year, if that made sense in terms of eligibility.
0: I have written down my notes, seven days, seven months. Uh, I know that Jimmy Johnson, who was a student, student of mine in the program we had for uh, college students to get a degree in tennis teaching pro management, and yeah. then his brother Joey... Uh, they both recommended that you come and see me, but when you finally did come to see me, it was after you finished your senior year. It was for maybe ten days, but I got down seven. Where that I was doing a project for, I was working for non the nonprofit in Memphis, and you came. Um, I remember uh, saying, "Goldoff, you have to." There's say like twenty five kids. They said you have to learn all twenty five names, and then we'll. Uh, yeah. That you thought you thought you thought I was teasing. Yeah, I, said,
1: I thought you were joking. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I thought I thought you were joking.
0: I said, no, once you learn all 25 names, we'll, we'll film you. We'll, uh, we'll help you out. But you got, yeah. you got to learn everybody's name in, in the program first. The, um,
1: I, thought I, was, I thought I was too cool for school.
0: But I remember seven, <laughs> seven days, you were going to go back, and your dad wanted you to finish the degree before you started to play. And I remember giving you a reading list and telling you, okay, you're going to be giving some lessons, but... You know, the Peter Burwash, be 2% selfish, do these type of things in your lesson to improve your own game. Yeah. Um, what was your, what's your recollection from coming and being filmed for the first time? So you've gone through juniors, you've gone through college, and then you come and get yeah. your game assessed.
1: Yeah, it was one of those things where, again, it was an inflection point. I, I got done with my athletic eligibility at UT and, you know, the next goal was even beyond just the injury. I was like, all right, well, I guess the next, you know, route is I'm going to try to play. And I knew that again, that there's, it's a different level and that I, I really had holes. I had technical holes. I mean, glaring technical holes and, uh, you know, coming to Memphis was the first time I really, how do I, where there was actual, I had to give actual thought into my game and really reflect on what I needed to do in the sense of, I had never really been presented with information in the sense of how how to think about the game. Everything was kind of just instinct. Um, so just my first impression, you know, I, we get there and, you know, I see Spencer. I knew Spencer actually before, and, um, you know, I met you guys, and, you know, we're, I forget, we, uh, we had a meeting that night, and uh, I had no idea that you guys you know, you guys would talk about tennis every night. That was new to me. Like I never, you know, whenever I'm, I'd, I never really spoke about tennis. I would speak about other sports and stuff like that, but I would never, you know, every single night you guys were sitting down and talking about the game, you know, talking about life. And that to me was like, Whoa.
0: Well, yeah. For our yeah, reasons, yeah. Uh, Spencer, Spencer Johnson, son of Joey, nephew, of Jimmy, uh, yeah. With the LDS church, he's doing a mission right now, but he's scheduled to go to UCLA. Uh, yeah, so he would have been yeah. a student working at that time. But I do remember yeah. uh, the NBA playoffs were going, and uh, I remember you shadow swinging like through an entire game.
1: Yeah, I so it was just one of those things where we had done that. Sorry, I got a little sidetracked, but we had done that. Uh, we'd done the video early in the day, and we did the uh, we did the how do I say the classroom at the facility, and I'm going through it, and, I, and I'm just listening. I was like, that makes sense. You know, and it was one of those things where I'm thinking it that makes sense, but I little did I know how much effort and work was going to be needed to make those changes. So for me, you know, the first night I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go shadow. I'll do some cone work. I'll bring the cone to the uh, the kitchen area. Not the kitchen, but sorry, the living room where the TV was. I'll watch this game and I'll just I'll just shadow. It was like a Miami Heat game. I forgot who are they pl- I think they were playing the Celtics or something like that. This was way back in um I want to say 2017 and so I was just shadow swinging and uh yeah and it was I felt like it it made sense I could feel it and uh and the sense of my grip changing and how western my grip was and you know just being able to visualize what's going on being, being able to see myself hit the ball and getting that information right then and there of what was going on with my game and why certain things were happening, why I was missing in certain areas, you know, doing the tiebreaker test and just not being able to put a volley inside the middle of the service box, (laughs) little things like that. Where I was like, Oh wow. Okay. I mean, that's, he's asking me to put it in the service box and I can't, and I can't put it there. I'm sorry,
0: as I started off with uh, you're not, your background is not chicken liver to be ranked two tennis recruiting and, and go to a prestigious school like Texas. But that happens quite often when we say, okay, let's just feed some balls and see, yeah. see if you can hit some targets. Um, that's very shocking to players when they are skill tests like that.
1: Yeah, I remember a uh, – I won't say names, but uh, I remember there was one – you know, a very highly ranked player whenever we were at happy lane, do the uh, ATP wise come and at happy lane do the uh, tiebreaker test. And I think it was seven yeah. one, you know, and it, yeah.
0: Mackenzie McDonald. Yeah. <laughs> with, uh, yeah. A great, great, great player. I saw, saw, he just won a doubles tournament. It was interesting to hear to digress what he's, he's played with. Mello. Was it Ricardo Mello on the tour?
1: Melo, I know, I know, uh, I know his last name, Melo. But you know, I don't. know. I you know,
0: you know that they just won in Japan, and you know, he was just saying how it was great to play with a double specialist and how they clean up at the net, such a big serve and the level of expertise. But right. yeah, the, the ATP level is cranking the ball out like Hopman or Lansdorp, uh, and uh, you know, to his credit, you know, when you go through the test for the first time, you, if you, you start doing it over and over again, you get you get better at it. But
1: yeah. You've, but it was an eye opener. Yeah. It was an eye opener for me. I mean, because it just showed you know how much of my how much of my doing because I'm just able to maybe just run around the court and extend rallies and and uh, compete you know at a decent level. How much of this is really what I bring to the table skill wise?
0: Well, I think work, uh, I think work wise too. Though when you when you leave and go, okay, here's a reading list and here are yeah. all, all these videos to watch. Um, and then sh- shortly after that, I remember, and I give people a hard time. I mean, I, our listeners—they should know—I call you uh, Georgie, baby. I like the name George Silveroff. I ch- yeah. I changed my name to Goldsmith, but just so I said, no, you're just cannon fodder because uh, you went out to L.A., Carson. You know, you take a lease, and it's yeah. the war of financial attrition, trying to be a pro. And my recommendation was. Uh, to go down to Lake Nona and shadow Matt Clore, who at Lake Nona and, you know, certainly your level of play, you know, which you later went there, you, you know, the doors are open for someone who's accomplished, you know, they, I'd say they're very yeah. friendly with uh, players with your pedigree. Um,
1: yeah, it was it, no total. Sorry I mean to interrupt, but no, totally. I mean, I was given the reading list and it was, that's what I meant earlier by like, I, I, completely kind of blew that where it was one of those things I came back to UT and I didn't review the information, but I still looked at the videos that were given and I, I did some of the work, but I really, I mean, I made some changes, but I didn't really dive too deep into it as much as I should have. Well, then, you know, I was halfway in, halfway out. And, you know, I just, it was one of those things where, you know, moved. I learned the hard way in a lot of ways where, you know, you go out there and you think it's, it's great, you know, and in terms of exposure, it's great. You know, you're hitting with guys who are, you know, good players and, you know, you feel like you're, you know, just being around it's like, oh, cool. You know, I'm hitting with good players. So what does that make me, but I wasn't improving my skills. You know, oh, yeah. I wasn't improving my, yeah. Sorry?
0: No, I, I call that cannon fodder, you know, where yeah, I, I 100%. A, lot of, a lot of players, uh, when I was in Tampa for 15 years would go out to Saddlebrook and you know, we had Austin right. Krychek on as a guest and, you know, he's, my son was, did the same thing, practicing, practicing with Isner, which is obviously so many, so many positives, but, but you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, it's, and I think that, you know, parents, for example, fall for that trap where, well, if i my kid's always hitting with better players, that's, that's the secret. And, you know, certainly that's a, you know, that's a, a benefit, but that's not, a, not an end all. It's not a priority.
1: Couldn't agree more. No. And I, I think that, uh, I, I came, uh, came to Lake Nona and, you know, I remember that was probably about July of 2019. And, um, I think I let you know, I was like, you know, I asked you because I knew that. Yeah. I I remember you were, you saw me play and you're like, dude, what have you, you know, what have you been doing? (laughs) It's been a year. I mean, what kind of changes have you really made? You know, have you looked at the uh, course, you know, the uh, tennis intelligence applied? And I was like, no, I haven't looked at it. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and so that's whenever um, yeah, for our I listeners. knew I was far behind. For our,
0: for our listeners too, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, I think a lot of times we get pigeonholed where it's like, well, no, it's just, it's always grip, swing, body. It's always technique, but it's it's tactics, it's stats. It's It's the complete right. thorough study of what, you know, the body of work that we've put together. But then what happened yeah. is, uh, you know, you, you came back and forth a few times with Matt Clore. who also has been a guest on our podcast. Um, he said that you needed to spend more time, but why is it seven days, seven months? Um, tell the listeners a little bit about that experience because with the pandemic, it's like we had a perfect bubble. We had a bubble before we knew what a bubble was, yeah. you know, this 10 acre property with a fence around it and a pool and some tennis courts and bicycles and, um,
1: you know, it it was a uh, makeshift gym. No, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't know uh, many people who had a situation like that. You know, we were, we were lucky to be able to hit that many balls. I mean, definitely some, some long days, but it was one of those things where you know, once the, I, I, I think I was originally, I drove from California to Orlando, and you know we. I was really going to be there for about two, two to three months. and Then, you know, everything happened and uh, with, with COVID it hit and, you know, the bubble, you know, Leo and Andy and yourself created, you know, this bubble and, you know, a few players in there and, you know, sun up to sun down, you know, we would uh, go out there and just work on our games. You know, it was one of those things where all of this chaos was going on. You know, you turn on the TV and, you know, here we are in Happy Lane. Wow. It's yeah, you know, that's... It one of
0: we were fortunate to have the bubble that, you know, a lot of people weren't even, they weren't even hitting tennis balls, but I I think a key word is application. Seven months in, I think going back to Michael center, he was connected to Scotty Perelman because that was, uh, his coach at Kansas. Yeah. And Scotty worked on the staff at Vic Braden's. He was also a guest on our podcast. He coaches at university of Florida. Um, Listeners should go back. That was a, a great podcast. It was after Florida won the nationals. The, the movie script where Father Shelton and Son Shelton where they win the team championship. But then also yeah. too is uh, Bruce Burke was with Craig Tiley, uh, Jimmy Johnson. You know he actually was with me as a. I mean he was just an eighteen, nineteen year old kid at the time. But but you know um, all those names I've mentioned is if if people just had seven months. You know, seven months in Tibet, I mean, it's just like, okay, we're right. going to, you know, immersion. Um, you know, that's where, like, say, a coaching weekend, Vic Braden, I think he always used to say it well, is that, yeah, I just spoke twice at this USPTA conference, a conference, and there was 50 people in the room. I shared 50 points, and then they interpret them 50 different ways. But to just be yeah. there day in and day out and say, okay, this is how we do it, and how you saw other players, I mean, we had... Now, McDonald's was there for just shy of three weeks and and then we had you know there was one, one young kid who was just supposed to be there for his spring break and he ended up being there for months and months and it was a shock to him uh, Yeah. but it was uh, uh I think that was a a period of time where you've got a really thorough understanding and I would guess that they at, at 27 you're playing better tennis than you were when you were in college at' say 22.
1: oh man I was I mean, arguably in a lot of ways, I mean, I was playing better tennis. I mean, just to put it to you this way, I I was able to basically compete, you know, at a professional level without playing, but because of the information and applications and without me really hitting balls, I could go out there and still compete for professional titles where there's no way at 22 I'd be able to do that. And so I think that it took me time. It took me time to definitely, you know, have to take that in and, uh, you know, really absorb the information, and then be able to apply that information whenever I was out on the court. Um, but I do think that uh, going out and going—I mean, I was able to play some matches after that. But whenever COVID hit, I uh, about four months, five months after that, I ended up coaching at uh, Baylor, and I think that being able to coach at you know, college level and, you know, see it from another lens and apply that information that I'd learned and see it know on, see that play out in front of me where I never really had watched that much tennis. Um, that was, I think that was really important as well. And it really, the, it really helped.
0: The time you were at Baylor, I, I believe, I mean, it was on the uh, Lake Nota Campos. So I was there, you guys lost in the finals, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, a. Uh, that's what I was going to say as much as I, I respect the, uh, the storyline for, you know, Ben and, you know, his father and coach P, but that was, that was a tough evening, but uh, it was an amazing experience. So, I mean, I think that, you know, college tennis, I mean, that was for a match like that to happen during, not the, maybe not the peak of COVID, but during a COVID time to have that type of an environment. I mean, that was a special environment and a special match to be in. And, um i mean they were just too good i mean it was just it was like a, it was like an avalanche and i felt like things were going actually quite decently for us for the first 45 minutes to an hour you know you look around i don't mean to ramble but uh kind of a tangent but we were the first hour we get the double point relatively quickly and then uh you're looking around and you know, at line one, Adrian broke back for 5-5. Uh, line two, Matias is going into a breaker with uh, Riffus. Line three, Sven broke to go up 5-4 to serve for the first set. Line, Sorry, line three, Sven is serving for the first set. Line four, Nick is up a set and has break points. Line five, Charlie's up a set, 2-0 with uh, 40-15 to hold to go up 3-0. And line six, Spencer's you know five all you know so you're like looking around you're like "Hmm, i mean this is not a bad position to be and you know within 15 minutes you know it's completely changed and we never could uh get it back and it was just you know too good by the i mean look that was that was an incredible team i mean to have you know ben clinch the match in that fashion in front of i mean it wasn't a it wasn't at their courts but it was uh predominantly a Gator crowd, but I mean, that was, that was a really special moment for them. And overall, I mean, just a really special match to be in. I mean, I was pretty lucky to be there.
0: Well, it sounds like you have a photographic memory for that. Uh, it reminds me of uh, coach Valvano, NC state. They win the uh, national championship, Jimmy V and he, he would after they would play a match, a home match, Perhaps even on the road, but my understanding is a home match because I met one of the trainers. I was actually yeah. one time speaking to the NC State men's team, and there was an older man there. And I said, "Were you here in '83?" And he goes, "Yeah, or '82." He goes, "I, I, I worked for the basketball team," and so then I just started asking him all these questions. You know, he's very humble. The tennis players didn't really even know that he had um, worked for Valvano, and he said that the fitness, the, the fitness. Uh, members of the staff used to, they get, they got to leave after a few hours, but he said that the coaching staff, they would, they would actually be in his office, you know, pizza, beer, Coke. And uh, they would go through every minute. He he had a photographic memory. just like at the the two minute mark at the, you know, from this point into the score and just on and on, just could replay the whole game. But adrenaline, it does a great, a great number as far as improving one's memory.
1: Oh, I mean, trust me. I mean, I was trying to keep it together, but there's a lot of adrenaline, you know, you're looking around and, you know, you're trying to see what the scores are, you know, and see where we're at in the match and see, uh, you know, just make sure that uh, the two players I was with, making sure that I can help them out the best I could give them any information. But a lot of it is, you know, and one thing that I heard you talk about before I even started coaching was whatever, and I totally, as a player, I, I, I really enjoyed having somebody who wasn't really overloading me with so much information as much as, you know, maybe a couple quick tips, but I mean, just somebody to calm you down, you know, I, you know maybe, maybe crack a joke, you know, ease the tension a little bit, because in those types of moments, it can be, you know, the players are going through so much stress that I do think that. Getting them to level out and just you know take a chill pill and just regain focus that way, so you're you're not focusing on the uh, the crowd or you know the moment, but just what you need to do yeah. in that given time.
0: My experience at the NCAAs is, is that generally the coaches are more nervous than the players, and yeah, they have to be well aware of that. And I think, like you said, get them to laugh, relax a little bit. I think also, two for our listeners, um, the coaches are much better off making a suggestion to a player instead of, well, here's a directive. So, you know, you could think about this. This is something you could try, but not to make it a directive. With being a a volunteer, um, I think even being an assistant or even being a head coach, say if you go in as a new head coach, uh, there could be players that are seniors. So there's been players that have been there for three years. They're starting their fourth year and the coach is starting their first year. Um, I remember here recently, um, Nick White, who's now the new new head coach at Skidmore and he became the volunteer at Duke. And I said, well, why don't you ask Matt Clore and, you know, I gave him a couple other people to talk to and, and, you know, and really volunteer, um, many times is don't say anything, just go and help, you know, whether, how you can help without really saying anything, um, um, maybe you spent some time with Raleigh Grossbaum when he was at our place. He did an internship as well, and he's now at Dartmouth. And he's a very extroverted guy. And I re- remember he was at Georgia, and I talked to Manny Diaz about that as a volunteer. Of course, you have a plane, a higher, much higher plane background, which would really help you out. But remember, Manny, you know, was very much on the money, insightful. Where you know, he, here's a guy who's you know 23, and he's telling you know 21 year olds, and they're better players, and um, it's pretty difficult to, uh, um, if you're not in the position to be the head coach and then you, you'll hear head coaches say, well, I don't have my own players yet. Why don't you, why don't you comment on the, your your time at Baylor? You, know, you did mention Bruce Burke. Uh, he was a volunteer with years and years of experience and he was part of a national championship team before he joined you and your teammates at Texas. Um, Nick, right. Nick White, he's now the head coach at Skidmore. he, um, he was a volunteer at Duke. And I remember him talking to me and I said, well, here's a couple of people you can talk to. And one was, uh, I put on the list was Matt Clore. And said, well, really, when you go in as a volunteer, it's it's like you don't have a speaking part. Now, a bonus for you is you, you had very uh, respectable playing skills. Someone else I think you know is Raleigh Grossman, who's at Dartmouth. He's a very extroverted guy. And he's given the same advice as, you know, go in and, and chart numbers, you know, because even a new coach who goes in and it's their first year, could be a senior's fourth year. Um, Right. So um, you will hear college coaches say, well, I don't have all my own players. And and it's quite difficult to come in and know your role, especially if you're a a volunteer. So why don't you talk about your time at Baylor?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, so Baylor was in a, difficult position where, you know, Brian Boland had departed on uh, difficult terms, and uh, to say it nicely, and Michael Woodson was promoted from the assistant coach up to the head coach, and Ezog Vandemurta was promoted from the volunteer position up to the assistant position, and there. just to give you context as well, you know, there had been there, there was two groups of players. There was one group that was recruited by Brian Boland, and there was another that was recruited for, by uh, Matt Knoll. And it was a, it was a difficult position. I mean, for mainly Mike and Izak because they had not only players that weren't their own; they hadn't recruited them, but two different cultures, two completely different cultures. And uh, for me coming in. Like you said, it's one of those things. You're the volunteer. You just shut up. You know, you do what you need to do. You do what you're told. And you know, I'm lucky where Mike and Izak, you know, would include me on things uh, from an administrative standpoint, where I would just sit in and just listen. Where I ask, where, for, for instance, if there was a meeting, you know, about budget. If there was a meeting about scholarships. If there's a meeting, you know, maybe with uh, with marketing, I would I would like to sit in and I don't I won't say a word, but I want to know how a program is run and they were nice enough to just deal with me in a way and just let me sit in a corner. And I would, I would just just listen. But I think that as a volunteer, you know, just kind of going back to another point was um, your, your role isn't to tell players what to do. And I think that, you know, whenever you come in, you have to understand that you are a supporting role for the head coach and assistant coach and uh you you have to be aligned at all times and your opinion and things like that you that's you you're entitled to that but just know that you your opinion doesn't reign over what the head coach is trying to build and um i think that we were in a peculiar position also in the middle of covid where you know Nobody really knew what was going on. The players were not allowed to even enter the facility in the sense of inside the locker rooms for the first semester. They weren't allowed in. So we would set up these tiny tents outside. Not tiny tents, but just covered tents right up where the courts were. So, you know, they could set up, you know, their their bags and things that they're getting ready if they had, you know, a training table, something like that. And uh, they would practice on their own. I mean, there are even points where the administration was saying, "Is are there any way you know you can wash the tennis rackets after each practice, <laughs> or even wash the tennis balls?" And it was just like, "We we can't do that." You know that those are just. It was just a tough, tough time uh, from that standpoint. A lot of question marks. And anyways, I mean, just kind of in my role as a volunteer, I, I guess I was. I could have a different, not a different, but I could have my relationship and dynamic with the players was unique where I'm not the head coach, but I'm also, you know, somebody who's a little bit closer in age um, and I can actually knew some of them from whenever I was playing and um, definitely not leading from the top down, but leading more laterally and where I could go out and hit, a little bit and um, I really wanted to make sure that whenever I was hitting that I wasn't goofing around that you know keeping it as precise I wanted to keep my level as high as possible too so that I wasn't you know bringing the practices down and you know boosting the, the players but um, you know once the season starts you know it's a sprint we had 14 guys on the team and uh, that's I would say that's most likely on the larger side for most rosters and between mike izak and myself you know we we did our best to uh, accommodate all 14 players but once the spring starts we really leaned into uh the players that were traveling and for me i i you know given there were 14 guys there was always people to hit with so the guys who weren't really playing necessarily as much i try to lean into those relationships and hit with as much hit with them as much as i could so they didn't feel like they were, you know, pushed off to the side at all, and and I think that you know, whenever you're on the road, you just do what you're told. You know, as a volunteer, you know, you if you're required to go grab food, go grab food. You know, go grab food for the team. Uh, if you got to go grab the rental cars, or if you have to bring balls to the courts, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the hotel. You know, if you have to go check everybody into the hotel, just just do just do it. And uh, it's just a part of the experience. And I think along the way, I learned a lot of things in terms of organization where I'm I'm honest and completely honest. That's one area where I struggle with is the organization side. So that really forced me to have to grow up in that, in that, uh, in that regard. And I think a huge thing that I learned from Mike and Izak where there's no job off limits. doesn't matter if you're the head coach, you know, you're stringing rackets, you know, we would, uh, doesn't matter if you're the head coach, you know, Mike was out there, you know, painting fences. I mean, we paint. I mean, there was a time whenever you know we couldn't get the fences painted before Big Twelve. So Mike said, "All right, go get paint. We're gonna paint these fences." And so we we spent about three hours out on the courts, you know, painting the fences. So I think that to me was really really important to see because there just really wasn't anything off limits in terms of you you were never too high or almighty to do. You know, because Mike's out there, you know, stringing rackets. You know, he string. There's a point where we didn't have a stringer in the fall, so between Mike Ezuck and myself, we're probably stringing eight rackets a day. You know, and we're going out there doing whatever needs to be done. Um,
0: no, that's what it takes. I remember being a department head at a two-year school, and uh, people would say, "What do you do?" I, I clean the ballroom. I mean, you yeah. you, you got to do everything. I'm um, being a volunteer. The uh, nuts and bolts, which we. Th- that's for technique. The X's and O's for, for tactics. Um, I tell people all the time, you can you know, say someone wants to even work as a, as a manager. I'm saying, well, you know, instead of you know, getting the Gatorade and getting the towels, why don't you be a video statistician? I don't, th- I don't think initially that a volunteer, certainly a manager, um, even the assistant coach, a new assistant coach, or perhaps even the head coach who comes in and he's got people that have been there for three years, is that you're much better off to go with tactics, than, you know, be a video statistician instead of a video technician. But why don't you talk a little bit about your role with being there as far as nuts and bolts, X's and O's, and sure. the players' games?
1: Yeah, so the way that it was structured at Baylor, where, you know, all three coaches would, you know, obviously – have some input with each, every single player, you know, you're, you're just around each other all day. There's going to be input, you know, you're, you're going to be at every single one of each player's practice, but we were assigned certain players. So, uh, I was assigned four players my first year where I could really lean into those four. They were considered, I guess, my, my lead players. And, uh, I would meet with them and we'd go over short, medium, long-term goals, uh, whether that's mental, tactical, Uh, you know, technical. And I think that, you know, the reality is that it wasn't, you have to work within somebody's game. And that's, that was a uh, challenge for me where my background, you know, and the information that I had kind of learned at Happy Lane, uh, it was one of those things where, you know, having to tailor that around where it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to change the, you know, change somebody's continental grip on their volleys to a composite where they're going to feel comfortable making those grip changes, you know, during the spring. But I can try to work within this person's game or make them aware of certain things that are happening, whether that's me charting a practice match or whether that's me going back on video and charting one of their actual matches, uh, whether in doubles and just showing them how the continental grip will affect where the volley goes, just little things like that where uh, also as a volunteer, you can't demand those changes. I under, I understood that dynamic. I didn't want to be the volunteer that was bossing people around because the reality is that I, I just don't have that type of voice in the sense of that's not that wasn't my position. And I think that it would have been very hard for me to demand things from people. So my strategy whenever I was at Baylor in terms of introducing certain concepts where I would come prepared with as many numbers from charting matches or video examples. And then it was almost as if, if you want to work on this, let's work on this. But if you don't, let's find another way to accomplish this because it's just, it's just given my role. I think it would have been, it was very tough, but I did have some headway with certain players and I think that it, it paid off. But I think that, as long as you have information to back up your claims and you're able to explain it concisely and simply, I I thought that I had success, you know, with certain players for sure. Uh, Given my, given my role as a volunteer.
0: uh, One thing for our listeners, Happy Lane, uh, it was the three year period where we uh, had a small setting just within within five miles of the the national campus. Uh, Here's an experience. Uh, One of our parents, uh, bright guy, had the Harvard MBA, the glorified document. His daughter became a really good tennis player, played at Vanderbilt. He used to always say, Steve, you should just run doubles camps, doubles camps, doubles camps, doubles only, and uh, just teach people double strategy. And I said, well, that sounds great in theory, but you still have to teach people how to serve. Still have to teach people how to return. Still have to teach, right. teach people how to volley, so that's where, you know, the the technique and the tactics they really become one. You know, the the nuts and bolts and the X's and O's they they, they really should become one. And then another thing too with uh, Baylor, it's uh, obviously a really good tennis player. You could talk a little bit about the team, the 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 cast of characters, uh, different countries, and whether freshmen, sure. sophomores. Uh, I would say straight across the board that college tennis needs to adopt the same mentality as college football, where like a Tom Brady, they red shirt, like the football players all come in and red shirt because, you know, the, it's just the opposite. You know, our listeners know I've said that a few times with these podcasts is that, you know, a lot of the coaches sell out and they don't, uh, the players have this, they're, they're given the right to be a prima donna. Well, you don't have to come in the fall. You can just come in January, yeah. play pro tennis fall, or even in, come in the fall and we'll take you to pro tournaments where, um, straight across the board. Um, there's obviously a few, always a few exceptions to the rule, but you know, most kids who play big time tennis, like at Texas, they'd be better off their freshman years. Like, okay. Like John Wooden. Okay. Now we're going to teach you how to dribble. Now we're going to teach you a chess pass. We're going to go right back to square one. Um, uh, but it, it's just not done that way. But tell us a little bit about the players yeah. where, where they were from and, the, re- the recruiting.
1: Sure. Uh, so we had, uh, we had players from almost every single continent. My time at, uh, my time at Baylor, we had uh, whew, anywhere but from Taiwan to Spain to Pittsburgh. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were all over the place, but uh, Baylor historically has been a pretty, uh, pretty international team. Uh, but. I would say, man if we had guys from Chile, Slovenia, Canada, I mean obviously the u s, but uh, all all over the map, really France
0: ihop international house of players
1: I, I mean it's it really is it really is super diverse, but in terms of recruiting now, I mean, with the uh, recruiting budgets that these schools have at the, uh, you know, at the, at this top power five level. I mean, you have, I remember the first, uh, the first summer after NCAA. So Mike went straight from Orlando and just immediately started recruiting all over the world. I mean, including the U S but all over the world, you know, just taking trips and, uh, you know, recruiting online, obviously texting and just went to, uh, I mean, went to where I think he was in Waco for about three weeks for the whole summer and uh, was just, you know, recruiting and working on getting uh, on getting players. So
0: it's really changed. Years ago, um, the coaches were running camps all summer long. So the budgets have definitely, definitely increased. That's one thing as a volunteer, uh, you can't do any um, off campus recruiting, correct?
1: No, I'm not allowed to travel but I am allowed to uh, have contact with, uh, with certain – with players like if they reach out. For instance, players would reach out to me on, uh, on email and uh, I could respond or on social media, things like that. But one thing um, what was interesting, and just kind of harping back to this part of the recruiting process, but a lot of players would come in and they would say, well, I want to – I don't know if I'm going to play professionally. And one thing, you know, Mike or myself or Izak, you know, Izak was, you know, a, you know, accomplished player in his own right. And he would never, you would never know. He would never be the first one to tell you, you know, what his rank was or what he played. And it'd be one of those things where they're saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to go to college or play professionally. If I come to school, I, I want to play a full pro schedule and then I'll play during the spring. And I'm like, oh, uh, you're going to go professional. Or, what are you ranked do you have any atp points He'd be like yeah we have about one or two like oh okay do what what is your itf rank and then it would be you know something i'm not going to give a number just out of respect to some of the people we talked to but they were like okay uh what have you played certain players in the top what are your results against players inside of the top 200 well i haven't played any Like, okay, well, look, it's not a big deal. If you fancy that you are going to be inside of a population of about six people in the world who are ranked in the top 100 or top 75 by the time they're, you know, 20 or under 20, that's great. You know, (laughs) all credit to you. You got a lot of confidence. But just know that the average age in the top 100 right now is 30 to 31. And uh, you're putting yourself inside of a population of about five to six people. And it's not to be negative, but we just, you know, these are the numbers. And we would recommend that regardless if you choose Baylor, you know, we, we can help you out with trying to go to a school. And, you know, it's it, it really is crazy where, you know, players are asking to play more tournaments during the fall. And, you know, the the look at the, look at the results you're having whenever you do play pro tournaments. You know, and the reality is a lot of the players who are traveling to play more pro tournaments, it's not a matter of playing more pro tournaments. It's a matter of building up your skill set and the results show. I don't know what playing an extra 10 tournaments during the fall will bring you if you're qualifying only for two or three of them and maybe have one or two points to show for a. Out of thirty tournaments, you have three points. It's like, well, I think that we're we're missing we're missing the point. <laughs> that yeah, makes I, sense. More yeah. Per- yeah. you need more matches. You need more matches. You need to build up your skills.
0: Yeah, and you need more competitive matches. You know that whole thing uh, being in the right place at the right time. Roger Federer recently said he was lucky to have the right coaches at the right time. Let's circle back when you were uh, a teenager at the Advantage Tennis Academy in Orange County. Was Dave Secker there?
1: Dave Secker was there. Yeah, Dave was there for, for a brief period. So he, I would come back over the summer, and um, and train slash coach a little bit on the on the side. And Dave was there uh, the second, the first summer I came back. No, I and uh, why, yeah, why so I question. had to cut crossover.
0: I'm sorry, crossover. Yeah, so with Dave, uh, head coach Simon Earnshaw, they're doing so well at NZ State. I know they just won a doubles title. <laughs> Uh, another doubles title, but he's done the homework. Uh, I do think it's, yeah. you know, I mean, I it's done that. I know it's not, I, I shouldn't say, I think it's, it's a lot of hype to uh, for these college coaches to say, Hey, come on in and we'll, you know, we'll take you to pro tournaments. I think it's, it's, you know, you're in college, so let's, let's, let's develop you as a college tennis player, obviously with the, the plan of, you know, where are you are going to go beyond college? Um, but let's really go to work on skills. Because really, um, there are some home run stories, but, uh, again, I I just think that it's upside down, inside out, and it's just wrong, 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 where, uh, yeah, most college tennis players, incoming college freshmen would be best to take more time and the system allows for that, you know, so it shouldn't be rush, rush, rush. There's so many things to talk talk about. We'll we'll circle back to you playing and and thinking about playing again, but um, Marissa, she's going to be based in Dallas as a PT. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah. She's actually uh, studying for boards right now and she takes her test at the end of this month.
0: So you're based in Dallas and now you're at Brookhaven. Uh, I I talked to you just a few days ago, just getting this podcast organized and Let's just touch upon anxiety. You know, you're around junior tennis players, junior parents. I mean, it's, sure. it's now um, in 2013, where you were two in the recruiting class. That's like a decade ago. Um, hmm. Now coming back and a flashback to be around junior tennis. Why don't you expound upon anxiety and your thoughts along those lines?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is so. Last week, I went to uh, took a group of players to a uh, to a tournament. It was the you know, it was the first time in a really long time I've been to a junior term, but obviously, it's been about it's been about thirteen years since I've been to a you know fourteen, 14 and unders tournament, and uh, I've been so far. I, I really hadn't realized how far moved I'd been from that setting, and I think for for me growing up, I I was I played tournaments, but I had never. Um, I I never played a tournament like this, you know, whereas a national tournament for 14s, I just quite simply, I just wasn't good enough. But just kind of takeaways was the, uh, like you said, the anxiety, you know, from everybody, you know, it's just so tense. (laughs) You know, we walk into the tournament site the first day, you know, obviously, whenever the most people are there, and, you know, everything is just so, there's so much angst, you know, everybody's, you know, on pins and needles, and People are competing, you know, and you know, screaming after you know. You know when somebody won or lost the point. Every you know, it's like on ten courts. You know, you're just hearing it, and um, yeah. And there's parents, you know, arguing with other parents, and and I'm just, you know, I, I'm keeping my distance, watching, you know, the players, and you know, and it was definitely one of those things where you're looking at it, and you're looking at certain players who maybe lost, but. And you're looking at certain players that have won, and you're just saying, "Wow, that you know, even the players who are winning, like that is not gonna that, that's not gonna translate. That that is going to work for another couple of years, but in terms of the current skill set and what and the way that they're holding on to the racket, I just that is not going to last beyond another year and a half to two years. And um, it's confusing though because a lot of these players who are making quarters, you know, semis, or they're winning the the back draws, you know, they're they're the ones who are getting results and who are furthering their rank and uh you know it's just it's not gonna scale. They, you know, their game is not going to scale to the next level and it's neither it's neither here nor there. Uh live in you know live and let live and let live in a lot of ways. Uh but it, it was definitely an, an eye opener in a lot of ways. And you know I told a lot of the players, you know, who you know I I am not there you know i am i'm there to I'm there to help out, and i I've only been a broke I know that Dave has been coaching these players for you know a couple of years to at least these players for years and i'm there to there to help, but you know our players are coming in and they're trying to finish at the net and play aggressively, and it's confusing and one of the players who's a little bit younger is you know saying, you know I'm not going to lose to that guy in a year and I, and I was like, you know buddy i I love that mentality. Like you lost 10-7 in the break, or you could have beat that guy today. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you could have beat that guy today. And, uh, you know, like I said, I love the mentality. And he's not, and I don't think he's wrong. But, you know, uh, Dave told me a a Ty Tucker quote uh, where he was like, yeah, I want you to work on what you're working on, but I also want you to, you know, freaking win. (laughs) You know, also freaking beat the guy while working on what you're working on and playing where you want to go. And I think that, you know, that's something that I'm going to definitely steal. Cause I, I really like that because I think that a lot of times players are working on things, but um, can use that as a crutch. And I definitely know that I, I did that whenever I was making some changes and playing some matches, but the reality is just play with what you got on the given day and just, you know, fight like hell.
0: Uh, Ty, um, Ty Tucker, I spoke to him a couple of days ago because one of the uh, kids that we've coached since age nine, um, a supplemental, in a supplemental way, uh, Steve Roberts is coach to player. So people come and see us, and this young guy is being recruited by Ohio State. And Ty was talking about, you know, it was coming back to Jimmy Connors. I mean, Jimmy, I heard him speak one time and he said, you got to play where the pressure is. You know, you know, yeah. I, think, I think a lot of times people are always thinking about playing, playing higher levels. I mean, I, I cringe when I just hear parents talking about level twos and level threes. And it was, you know, the good yeah. old days, there was no level twos and level threes. You played more in your backyard. There wasn't as many tournaments. Um, you've, you've stayed within your section. I mean, yeah, but Ty was just saying that, you know, you, you know. In, in the end, everybody knows that you got to learn to be able to compete. And, you know, you should yeah. be able to compete while you're changing your strokes, and you should have enough emotional control where you don't revert back. You should be able to um you know, granted, I think people could take uh, you know six, eight weeks, but you should be six or eight weeks off from competition. But you should be able to compete and play at the same time. Now, some people are yeah. so ultra competitive; their emotional quotient they're just they're just they just not ready to do that. So, some people need to take even more time off. So, um,
1: but, yeah, but I, I think that a lot of the anxiety, though, Steve, comes from the the skill set. You know, if the, I know that the only way I have to win is to just put balls in play. And I'm at the mercy of my opponent and it's close match. I I mean, I don't have any control of the situation. I'm going to have a certain level of anxiety. And, you know, and I, you know, and I I think that with a lot of the kids, it's I'm looking, I mean, that's kind of their reality where it's like, maybe they're going to win, but they have no control of that. You know, their, their opponent's going to lose the match instead of them going out there and winning. And so there's, there's a fine line because you don't want to be the kid who goes out there and just also just makes a zillion errors and just say, Oh, I'm being aggressive. You know, there's a, there's a very fine line. You want to compete, you want to win, but that does, that's no excuse to green light all these errors. But I do think, uh, you know, just to see that and, you know, to think about, and just to think of it from, at least my experience where man taking taking you know a little bit of time off to work on games, you know where a lot of these kids, I'm sure, are playing tournaments every single weekend I mean you're you're so far away from really having to worry about the the result in the sense of it's not like you're you're not playing for a scholarship, you know yet well yeah are you're, you're just starting
0: they don't realize they're closer to the beginning. Uh, it's like at high in high school when you graduate, the, the term is commencement. We have two young girls here from Canada. Two months, the first month, we did so much work. I said, "Okay, I've been teaching you the first month. Now I'm going to coach you." And there's a there's a different it's a different language, teaching being information transfer. So you can do this with scoring formats that are shorter. You know, today we did it with tiebreakers, but we were, have been doing it with no ad sets. First set very quickly, listeners. One serve, server has to stay back. So you have to really work on your second serve. The, return, the returner has to come in. They have to come in, and it has to be an approach shot. They can't bang the ball. So then, you know, you have a, an approach shot taking place, which is a lost art. a volley, in and an overhead. It. And it's very difficult for me to watch this. But these girls have just played baseline tennis. You know, they, they started when they were, yeah. you know, six years old. Now they're 14. It's, it's an eight-year-old problem. So the second set, you know, one has to serve volley. You know, we're not doing it. We're okay. Serve to the body, return to the body. No, they just serve and volley. And they have zero instincts to move it to net. Yep. And then the third set says, okay, you can't come in. Just serve, stay back, and just rally, just defense. And, but it, it's putting them in a set where they have to play. You know, they're keeping score. It's a set. Right. But at the same time, you know, you know and then you can, you can chirp from the sidelines and say, no, no, no. You're working on everything we've worked on. You know, hitting off a cone, shadow swing in front of the mirror is same as match point. But uh, to have creative sets played, it's just amazing. We say psychology sum it up in one word: feelings. And there's just avoidance, and you see it time after time. Clones taught by clowns, where you know most of the kids can just hit forehands. But the other thing too is that someone who's coming up through the Brookhaven program, they're being taught a, an all-court game, takes longer to develop. A lot of the kids that are playing, they're just totally free. They're not thinking about anything. You know, they're that's a
1: great point. No, that's that's a great point. No, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. I was uh, just gonna say. I mean, it's and to be completely honest, I mean, it's and this is a, it's funny you bring that up because uh, there was a kid this weekend that uh, plays at Brookhaven, and that's that's one thing I was telling him. I was like, you you have a you have a lot of options, but that's where you're getting really confused out there, and you almost you're you're freezing because it, you know it's just it was like what what am I you know putting it all together into structure knowing the areas of the court, when to execute certain plays and what to do in certain areas where, you know, that should actually free you up and where you don't think it's just automatic, but it's just putting that all together at a young age where it's uh, you know, you're playing against a kid who's only, you know, only thought is I'm going to run around and hit my forehand into open space.
0: I, I mean, I think it is a red flag for, for, for pros first and parents second. And then if the player, is doing it where they're, they're going to say, well, a year from now I'm going to win. I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, no, you need to do it now. It is, again, it is an approach for the future, but you know, that that expression "The future is now.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's my point too, is like, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot closer than I think these, these kids, these kids think in the sense of it's really not that much time. It's, It's not a lot of time, but if you're working and you're very focused in what you're doing, you can, you can make, big jumps. You really can. I I really believe that. Especially at the you know, at the 14th level where there's you have so much you have so much to gain. And uh you're not you don't have as much miling, you don't have as much built up as maybe somebody who's twenty two or twenty five or you know, somebody who's in college. So it really is not that big of a deal to just go out, work on what you need to work on. You know, can com- still compete to win. Uh, but work on those things and stick to the way that you want to play because it's just one of those things where it's the level of anxiety. You know, the, actually the kid who won it was 12 years old, uh, who on the turn was 12 years old and was just calm, didn't say a word. I mean, just just mature beyond his, beyond his years. I mean, compared to some of the other 14 to 14 and a half year olds there. And I thought that that was, that was really interesting. Yeah, his they, dad yeah. didn't say, His dad did not say one word. Uh, the kid did not say one word. You wouldn't know whether he was winning or losing. And they won. They you know he won the tournament. Nothing was said. And they just go. It was just so, it was really, I was just basically watching people, you know, whenever I was there too, besides our players. And I thought that, that was really interesting. Uh, watching those, uh, watching that player and his his father inter- interact for that tournament. But
0: Well, there's so many things. Uh, a lot of tennis kids today, they're, you know, they've never been in an overtime in a basketball game, they've never had a penalty kick in soccer. It's just tennis, tennis, tennis. Um, what about yeah. the the bleacher talk? I think there's always a buzz at tournaments when you know. I mean, what are the parents talking about? And it's too much UTR and who's going here and oh,
1: who's, I mean, who's, it's, who's working? It's, there. Yeah, it's a uh, a lot of UTR talk. I think amongst the players. I mean, I I didn't have UTR growing up. Uh, I uh, there's only the USTA ranks. There's really only one. One ranking system that at least I paid attention to, and but the 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 level of knowledge that these players have of everybody's UTR, who they've beaten, how that's going to affect their UTR. If they beat a guy, uh, what happens if they lose? It's it's pretty amazing. I mean, amazing is one way to put it, but it's we're kind of missing the kind of missing the the point of the, the UT it's just a number but I think one thing that and framing it in a different way is like what's your forehand UTR you know what's your serve UTR you know what you just think of it from a different way because this this under this understanding of the UTR to me was quite incredible but it was also kind of alarming because nobody's really talking about stats, nobody's really talking about, you know, at least in baseball, there's a, even just from a physical training standpoint, you know, there's certain numbers you have to hit in terms of, you know, shoulder exercises or how much you squat or things like that. And, you know, there's kids in middle school and high school talking about that, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, everybody's talking about numbers, but it's, it's a little bit of a different talk than like somebody's rank. Well, and it, is a,
0: like, it is a ranking. We always say if it was a, if you're a nine a 10, that would be a rating, but if you're a nine point two six, when you, when you were a kid, it was, uh, are you a blue chip, a a five star, four star, three star, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. There was tennisrecruiting.net, but even then that was, um, that was like my last year of school when that was first starting to get really popular. Uh, it was, mainly USTA ranks up into that point, And tennis recruiting was just starting where I started hearing people, say, like, oh, are you a five-star? Are you a four-star? Are you a blue-chip? <laughs> you know, no, falling into those certain categories.
0: No, I'm a tennis parent. I can remember, uh, certainly my son, Connor, he wanted to be a blue-chip. It was part of the language. You go, go to a tournament, and back in those days, was, some kids say, oh, I had a really tough draw. I had to play a four-star. And, yeah. Or I had a really tough draw. I had to play a five-star. And it's like, shut up. But before, this is a very, very important point, is when kids played in their section, they would knew they knew where they were in their section. But as far as a national ranking, uh, yeah, there was the indoors at Thanksgiving. Not everybody went to that, but people really wanted to go to the clay courts and the hard courts. And you played within your age group. And then it was after the summer that you would find out, you know, in September you'd find, okay, what would, what would be your national ranking? But now it's like the stock market. The parents, uh some of the people have big investments in the stock market. They're not even looking at it. They're just looking at k- other kids, UTRs. And where, where did everybody play this past weekend? And yeah, you know, I, it's I really, didn't, it's, it's really a mess. So I think when it comes down to anxiety, that that's a, a big part of it.
1: And and look, I mean, I, these parents have a lot invested, you know, and like what you said, where, you know, if you break it down a lot of ways, some people are traveling from out. I mean, there's, there is a couple kids from California who came all the way to Austin and it's during ACL, which is a massive music festival. So the hotel rates are, I mean, jacked up. I mean, that means you have to get a rental car, you know, food, um, stringing. There's, there's you know, there's a, there's a huge financial you know, investment going into these tournaments.
0: Yeah. The, gov- and, the government body of tennis, I mean, with, I mean, what should happen, no one's asking me, but what should happen is the USTA should rent rent dorms. You know, there's summer camps, but you could have summer tournaments where, you know, the parents aren't there. They check, they drop their kid off and they're going to be in a dormitory setting and it's just match play. And it's yeah. it's it's much, much cheaper. And th- then how many matches could they play? Um, so it, it, they're really, I know Dave Fish, uh, the UTR was former coach from Harvard. He, he walked away from the UTR, but he, he was... Dave Howell put it together. Dave Fish is really the one with the famous white paper and said, okay, this is what needs to be done. It it should have been free. I mean, there is self-rating now, but people aren't really aware of that. That UTR hit, that has to be one of the most off-the-wall things, I mean. Yeah, a I paid a couple. A, of. a paid hit. I thought that was for the mafia. But we have... <laughs> with you know, you're you're gonna actually call someone up and then you're gonna pay a large amount of money to have your kid who's a nine hit with an eleven and it's like, Oh, tennis is just absurd. And it's uh you know, I always tell people the parents, I said, Just because tennis is crazy doesn't mean that you have to be crazy. You know, try to figure this out. But it does it does take years. It's it's uh you know, it doesn't it, you know, I tell parents all the time, Remember you're going down the road for the first time. So they they really they lack exposure. They certainly, uh, Vic Brady's socioeconomic functioning levels, if they can afford junior tennis, obviously they're highly intelligent unless they have a money tree in the backyard and inherited it. But, um, yeah, too much biting the fingernails, too much anxiety.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, but it was, I mean, it was good to, I mean, in a way it was good for me to see. I mean, I can definitely, uh, use that and help out some of these players the best I can because I feel like, getting to see players compete and, uh, in the matches. And now like, now you show me, you, you show me your cards, buddy. <laughs> you show me your cards.
0: Well, I do think uh, in tennis uh, Canada, it, it did that for years where because of your age, uh, tennis Canada would send an old coach like myself. I'm 67, you're 27. So, you know, it, it's very good for yeah. the coaches to hear it from someone your age. Uh, cause you're really, um, 10 years removed from being a, a junior and 13 years removed from being a 14 in the 14 and unders. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Brookhaven. Uh, I've had a chance to meet Dion Krupia. I'd love to get Dion as a guest. He was a classmate of Dave Anderson's. He's, he's been a tennis teacher for obviously 40 some years. And now yep. they, and I know he's, he's done everything at Brookhaven. He used to be the one for the longest time, maybe still does some of that taking people to tournaments, but The term pre-academy, you've been there now and you you watch, they have him with the younger kids. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so I've I've, uh, been working predominantly with the uh, the academy, but there have been a couple times I've gone out with Coach Dion. And, you know, I've never seen an academy that has had a pre-academy or as they call it here, early childhood prep or academy prep. And it takes, you know, kids ranging from 6 to 10, 6 to 12, I should say, and uh, teaches them, you know, grip, swing, and body. And, you know, Dion's out there every day from 4.30 to 6.30 running the early childhood prep course. And uh, it's, I like I said, I've never seen a academy have a, you know, a, a pre-academy that feeds right into the academy. So by the time the kids are about, 13 to 14, they have a basic understanding of grip swing body and uh, the Brookhaven packet, you know, with uh, a variation of the seven concepts and in information zones of the courts. Um, that I have not seen that or heard of it from any other academy or organization. And so I think that that was really impressive. And just Dion in general, his energy and what he brings every single day. I mean, there isn't a coach out there teaching younger, you know, the early childhood prep or the academy prep that does not have an understanding of information. And I thought that that was really, that was really important. And that's really special because a lot of times whenever you look at junior development programs, I don't want to use the word the worst, but uh, the least prepared coaches are the ones who are handling people who are first uh, starting or hitting their first tennis ball. And I feel like at Brookhaven, you're getting somebody like Dion, you know, who's been, like you said, he's been coaching for 47 years and has an unbelievable, uh, f- I mean, fundamental understanding of uh, the information, well, you know, heading, you know, being the tip of the spear in a lot of ways. So that's, that's really special.
0: Here's a Dion Krupe, uh IOD, injury of day.
1: Um,
0: yeah. But, but Dion, as a natural, he's always had the voice. So so he was a student of mine years and years ago. And so there's a, some lower courts and some upper courts. And between the lower courts and the upper courts, there's a parking lot, there's a road, and there's a football field. And I'm running a faculty cl- clinic, and we've got music going. And Dion, <laughs> uh, the scenario, he misses the shot, and we we just I just hear this. Shut up. You know, and, uh, so I, I just, I yelled across the parking lot, the road, the football field. I go, group down here now. And, uh, but he has, he has that voice. Uh, but no, also I think that um, there's two sides to it, that the, the parent needs to, you know, so it's great that the coaches understand the pre-academy format. You know, no such thing as little strokes for little folks, the way the brain works, you know, there's some adjustments where, okay, with the really little kids, we'll teach them to hit two hands on both sides. Um, but there's really not that many advanced techniques. Oh, so composite grip on the forehand volley, the karaoke step on the backhand approach shot. You know, you start talking, like baseball pit coaches, they don't start really throwing, teaching young kids out, a, you know, a slider or a knuckleball until they just have a basic pitching motion. Not that I know sure. anything about that, but... You know, you just so, so many times, you know, you just know that some kid looks like he's doing a limbo and he's been told to arch the ball, arch the back, toss over his head. And it's like, right? Hey, you're 12 years old. You, mean, you, just, you just need to learn how to serve. Um, but, yeah, pre-academy. Um, but I, I think there's so much salesmanship where everybody, um, I shouldn't say everybody, almost everybody, too, way too many, the vast majority um, are trying to complicate it. They're trying to add some secret sauce, and oh, this is this is my two cents. But um, there's certainly some people so, that you've met that are at Brookhaven. Um, Mason Vaughn, Aiden Malik is there, Lance Hamilton, others, right, right, that you trained with uh, at Happy Lane, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, I I did a pre and post tape with you. For- for Or helped you make it for Alanis and Enya, but I don't think I met them at Happy Lane. Okay. I don't, I'm not sure if they came down during that time, but I was very familiar with, uh, I heard their names a lot and yeah, things I, like that.
0: But. Enya's the younger sister. She, um, I guess, this past weekend got to the finals of a level two. She's only still in I
1: think, 12. I think she won the tournament. She, yeah, I think she, she won. But yeah, she they, won it. Uh,
0: yeah, Cole Reeves, who was a guest on our podcast, he's in Arkansas. He taught those girls how to play. I mean, I really, I guess that they were at Happy Lane uh, 18 months. I mean, I mean, I could go back and check, but we spent quite a bit of time with them. Uh, I think for our listeners, uh, Aiden Malik is a Canadian. His mother was transferred. Um, one thing for that young man is he can take coaching. You know, I think that's a very important question to parents. You know, can your kid take coaching? And uh you know you could you know Malik, you can criticize him and and you really want criticism, you know think you know be nice and polite when people compliment you, but you need criticism, and uh they they don't hear your tone they don't they it's just what's the information
1: um yeah it has been it has been great where you know you can just be direct, you know stop the drill for a second be direct, and then just get then he's like, okay, great, and then you just get right back to work, and I feel like you know that's been. That's been one thing I noticed with, uh, Aiden, you know, and I feel like he's, you know, he's hungry and he's willing to improve. So that's been really cool to see.
0: Well, you know, he
1: works,
0: spent so much time with Richard and Anderson mirror on man. Mm-hmm. And that's where the information is the same. The, the approach is a little bit different. I think that Brookhaven, uh, I don't know if it'd be fair to call it a, a private lesson model, you know, because, you know, obviously Dave works one-on-one and gives private lessons. Or a lot of times, I mean, I don't really give private lessons. I do do, do video work and have a very I mean, so. It's, it's a much different setting. Uh, I've been in that situation where Anderson, you know, where you have twenty five pros and you're trying to make it yeah. work for them. Um, but it's interesting. That I talked to his dad. There's there's some adjustments to be made when you go from one program to the next. But it, it shouldn't be any adjustments to be made where someone's teaching you. There's no there's no continuity. Someone's teaching you. A completely different forehand, a completely different backhand. So, right. the um, with uh, career paths. I mean, you've coached in juniors, you've coached in college. You know, it's 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 very difficult in pros to be a a player coach um, unless you're, right. unless you were to commit to play doubles. I mean, what are your thoughts about being a player coach on the tour, being able to play some and? and coach on the tour.
1: Yeah, I'd definitely, I'd definitely be open to doing that. It would have to be the, uh, the right, you know, right situation. And uh, I don't, I'm, I would be very new to that in the sense of that'd be a new situation uh, for myself. But I know that you've mentioned that and, uh, you know, being able to coach and, you know, maybe even just cover expenses with that player and, you know, go out there and play some doubles, but uh, I meant I know that you mentioned. Uh, was it Connor did that briefly with a player and uh, had some success, if I'm not mistaken, but no. or did that briefly or they no. were thinking about doing?
0: No, Arvind, Arvin, Don, uh, Ram, Ramanathan. Those are the two guys. They weren't really re- ready for it at the time, and it was uh, in all yeah. fairness to them, it was just. Uh, Maybe if the possibility, you know, Ram Ramanathan, um, he was supposed to come and work with, with me. I was at the US Open with him twice. And, you know, he was good enough to make the Davis Cup team for India. And yeah. then the next thing you know, I mean, he didn't come and work with me because he made the Davis Cup team. And then there was a lot of exhibitions and things leading up to that.
1: Um, for sure. And I, I think that a lot of that has to do, at least on, Uh, my end is, you know, finding somebody, at least with my current ranking, at least that would want to play doubles with me where I'm not necessarily ranked low, but I'm also not high enough from the standpoint of, you know, if if there's somebody who wanted to be coached who was playing challengers, I don't think that I could travel with somebody like that because of my rank right now.
0: Well, you know, Uh, a crystal ball like Ram Rabanathan, great guy. I mean, he's still out there and You know, crystal ball, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe you're going to stay at 150. And I was at the U.S. Open, and it was 87 points or 87 backhand returns before he tried to hit a topspin backhand return. And, uh, you know, you can get away with that to a certain level because people are not, you know, serving volume, but, you know, they are looking to, I don't really like to repeat the phrase too many times, serve plus one, but they're looking to blast the, the, the second shot, their serve, and then their forehand. Um, but be, be with, uh, I think the creativity needs to be brought up as well as if someone for the listeners, if someone wants to play singles and doubles and someone has to qualify, you know, so if someone wants to be a player's coach, they can say, well, I'm going to be with this singles player and I just go where they go. And I don't have to be in the next city, or the next tournament to play the qualifiers or, right. um, but I also think too, is that, um, you know, people are always thinking about ATP points. You know, I think to go and to, to, to go to France and play money tournaments, and you know, like for someone like yourself to, you know, because it's a playing pro tennis is a war of financial attrition. It's so expensive. Uh, so my my son my son Connor played for three years, and you know, he made a very good point. He said, "Well, if I do this for ten more years, I'm going to be starting my career at a." a you know, the career after tennis is at 40 instead of 30. And the way that, way it breaks down, Roger, Roger Federer has always said that, you know, it's not right that basically the points double and the money doubles. You know, if someone gets to the quarterfinals, mm-hmm. they've had a great tournament, but should you really double the points and double the money? And, and if, if, you know, say, for example, the, you know, two guys in their 40s, they have two really good tournaments per year, They're still on the main tour. You know, and some of the events are only taking sixteen teams. So I'm not really talking about breaking in at that level, but just with young junior players that um, you know, like an American college player, what are you gonna do with summer one, summer two, summer three, summer four? And it all comes down to match count, comes down to money. And, you know, maybe their uncle has some money and they're traveling all over the place. And once again, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're not playing enough matches. Um, so, you know, to find the, the right circuit and, you know, it's okay. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to play on the future circuit and just so we can play on the future circuit. So we can play matches and we're not going to jump up like it's a rush. Well, I, you Neo know, I need to, now I need to play the challenger circuit. There's so many American kids, for example, they don't go over and experience red clay. You know, if you really want to be a pro pro, you every year should have a clay court season. And to say, okay, and then if, you know, the parents were to think of having someone like yourself, even the USTA, if they, in in this country, other federations, if, and I don't know, Ty Tucker talks about that, where um, there's so much money being spent, but take someone like yourself and say, okay, this is a coaching program and we're going to help fund you. And, you know, it could be done for singles as well, but then you say they're going to, you know, we're going to fund this for three years and then if you're doing so well, maybe the, the the number is, you know, 250 and someone gets to be 250 or 300 after three years, then they can, they can sign on for more time. But if they do, they have to give time back. They have to give time back and they have to work with younger players. So the burden is, is so much on the family and, you see it in junior tennis and the junior the, the parents are spending way too much money. They're you know, well I we gotta go play ITFs. And it's like there's five levels of ITFs. Idiots traveling foolishly. And you know, if you're really gonna be a great tennis player, you're you're playing for one type of point, ATP or or on the other side the the gals at WTA. And there's just now with the alphabet soup, and now there's a new circuit, there's, and there's discussion about being another circuit, if it's the world pin number, if it's in the dial circuit. Um, it's, you want to be able to play as many matches. You want to play competitive matches, but I think a lot of times people are chasing the Holy Grail. And, and um, you know, say, for example, a kid doesn't get into a level two. Well, that's because you haven't won. You know, winning takes, right. care, winning takes care of everything. I mean, if you, if you win... And he, well, I'm going to go to this tournament. And I'm going to win. I'm not going to, uh, you know, not go to this tournament and try to play play up a level. Um, I remember with Raven Claussen it went the other way. So it has to really thought out. I think like 20 times he was the number one seed at a futures tournament. But based on the ran, you know, we had someone who had, uh, sponsored boxers. And he thought, well this is great you know I I helped Raven a little bit in the beginning and now he's he's making money there's no expenses but I said no he's at a level where you have to have a blend you can't just play all futures but there yeah. um yeah you know the, the, where the you know the, to uh try to reduce overhead and you know even with junior tennis players um you know I think it's been really out of David Anderson's hands where Brookhaven's been a very successful program and, you know, has been successful because the way it was managed by Billy Freer or still is by Billy Freer. And, you know, nothing negative, but just where it's like, well, okay, let's, um, successful junior programs, it wouldn't necessarily be just Brookhaven, like I mentioned the USTA, is that as as a club, how can, you know, American tennis players are not, the clubs don't help them out. Where in, say in Europe they do, you know, you play right. for, you play for the club. Coming back to anxiety, I think the one thing that really helps with anxiety is if kids could be on a team. Uh, that's something that's another whole whole topic with uh, with junior tennis.
1: I guess that could play into also club tennis. You know, having somebody uh, be used to playing in a club setting, things like that. You know, I think that's definitely something that the US doesn't have. At all, which oh. I think is, which has been proven. I think in you know Germany, France, Italy, all those Spain. I mean, that's you know we had players even at uh, UT, Baylor. That we had a guy from the uh, from Baylor who played this last year. who's from the Czech Republic, and he still goes back home and plays club tennis. You know, he's been playing club tennis since he was you know, fourteen.
0: You know, no, there's uh, a lot of players, for example, from say, Czechoslovakian players, uh, you know, get it right, Czech Republic, but, you know, Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, the former Czechoslovakia, however that needs to be worded, but people know where I'm coming from. But players, and players say, from Argentina, that, you know, they know they don't have a great serve, Is on the men's side, and they've, they they rock up, and they're, they're playing money tournaments in, in France. Uh, but I think that uh, so many American kids I've coached, um, it's like hardcore, courts, hardcore, courts, hardcore. It's hard ATP. But you got to play for points, play for points, and um, but it, it comes back to financial attrition. Is that you know, like how how long can you uh, can you keep, can you stay on the, on the trail to become a competitive tennis player? And I, I think that's where um, many many parents are. Um, you know, that it's it's like it's the gold rush in California. It's like, we got to get there. We got to get there fast. And, you know, granted, there are the teenage sensations, but it's 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 a lot more late bloomers. But that career path, um, tell us where you are right now. You're coaching at Brookhaven and you're thinking about playing?
1: Sure. Yeah, so I've been coaching at Brookhaven for the last month and uh, really started, since I've gotten here, just basically training. Because whenever I first started playing about, July I really I didn't train because there was nobody at Baylor to hit with you know they're all foreign they went back home and uh just thought you know what I'll hit the road there's going to be plenty of players at these tournaments to hit with and I'll just you know I'll just go out and play and so it's been nice you know given out. I, I played for about a month and a half and got my rank back up to about 550 and um you know, it's been nice to be able to train because I feel like I'm more prepared. Uh, I think I've hit more in the last month than I have in the last three years, and that was even whenever I was playing. Uh, just to be able to be at Brookhaven, and I mean, they have an unbelievable setup. It's really, I mean, it's you're limited by how much you want to hit and how much you want to train. And uh, at least in the situation and standpoint where there's a wall, there's a there's a uh, ball machine court. So even if you don't have anybody to hit with, which is pretty rare, you can just set up on one of those two and you're still working on your game.
0: Well, and well, so for
1: me, that's.
0: Sorry. Uh, no, I'm going to go the ball machine. yeah, Brookhaven, everyone, it's a, it's like a little tennis city has a grade five. Now. Yeah. Anderson and Croupy, uh, they've been at Brookhaven for decades now. And, um, club Corp. That's the flagship. I'm going to guess that between Fort Worth and Dallas, there's 12 club Corp facilities. And, but besides that, um, there's easily another 12 facilities that they have coaches that went, that worked at Brookhaven. I mean, it's, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's 10, but it's, it's quite a few between. And I mean, if they were all working together, they are all working together right. you know, instead of just so much work right. stealing players and, you know, when, you know, the players from this club go to that club and, and that's not just uh, the fault of, uh, you know, pros uh, out there handing out business cards at tournaments, but the, the parents will bop and shop. I mean, you got to start the course and stay the course, but there really should be with the success they've had at Brookhaven. And, you know, a lot of parents don't even know there's people teaching at other clubs, like say at, um, I should just be able to name them, uh, the one that's so close to famous tennis club. It's really, it's right around the corner, uh, T-Bar M. And, yes. Um, or Lakes, uh, they're just where there's pros that have worked under Anderson, but there's the parents don't know. They don't know, like, well, you're working at T-Bar M, but you, you were trained to play and you were trained to teach at Brookhaven. And... You know, that's where I just think it's too individualized, it's too commercial, it's, it's, it's too much marketing. And, and, and I think we do, would do much better in tennis if we were all to work together. Many years ago when the World Cup was in the US, I listened to these discussions, these panel discussions they had about soccer. And, you know, one gentleman said, what they need to do is a pilot project. You know, let's, let's just take, Dallas would be a very good place to do that. Let's just take, let's just take Dallas and actually with Dave Anderson in East Texas between Tyler and Longview, there was a handful of clubs where, um, I mean, I can just go through it. There was two, there, was, there were six clubs and, you know, we had coaches at five of the six and okay. someone like say Guy Weinhold, whose daughter became number one in the 18s, he was at a country club, but he was obviously teaching really, really well. And you know, so the, everybody had their own students. Everybody had autonomy, but the players would get together on the weekend and they they would play. Uh, like Chad Clark, who yeah. played, played where you played, played at the University of Texas. So, um, you know, Anderson worked with him in uh, the neighboring town, Longview. But then, you know, on the weekends, if there wasn't tournaments, you know, everybody would come together and just be playing quality sets. And there's just so many things where... Where it could be better. Someone like yourself, um, as long as you, you don't you don't have. Cl- I don't like the term clientele, but if you have private lessons and the people are dependent upon a private lesson, you know and you can't argue with one on one. One on one is uh, obviously very helpful. But someone like yourself should be able to have a base, and, th- and this does take place around the world where you could have a base and you could come back and, well, okay, you're going to be working for a week for one week or two weeks of Brookhaven and you go out and you play for three or four, but you take kids to tournaments and you have hitting lessons. and But that's that's not really just a comment for, for you or Brookhaven, but just tennis in general. But you have to have a body of work. You have to have a pathway. You have to have a curriculum. You have to have a continuity, the, the common denominators where and, – and and you have that. That's where our listeners um, – mm-hmm. You know, giving out all this free content, that's what really should happen. Is that, um, but when I was 26 years old, I had already worked for, uh, I had been trained by Braden, Vandermeer, and Van Horn. So, just through those three, and, and we certainly added some ornaments. If those, you know, we always say Vic Braden is the, the Christmas tree, but uh, yeah, so career path. um, so. Yeah. you're gonna try to play again. What What would you see yourself doing down the road in tennis? So junior coach, college coach, pro coach? Do you see yourself coaching?
1: I, I definitely. I mean, I see myself coaching, and to be completely honest, probably most most likely, I can rule out professionally just from the standpoint of the uh, the travel requirements. Uh, I think I've I've been around a lot of uh, coaches who do travel. Let's say with a player. Um, whether it's WTA or ATP and you know, you're, you're going to be traveling uh, maybe about 35 weeks out of the year. And that's maybe, maybe 30 weeks out of the year. And maybe you're not even living with that player or you're around that player. So you have to travel whenever they want you to be around whenever they're training. And I, you know, just looking forward, you know, whenever I do have family, I'm not sure if I, Want to put my family through me being absent for like forty weeks out of you know fifty two
0: yeah, um but even that though is that uh like say with your wife <laughs> a physical therapist I mean I think a pro player someone who's a very seasoned vet if they're trained the right way, it's more important for them to have a physio than on the road than it is for them to have a coach, right. but you know it's, it's a matter of, okay, I'm going to go to eight tournaments a year with you um you, you probably know the name of the young man. Matt Clerce speaks very highly of him. I think he played at NC State. He coaches Mackenzie McDonald now?
1: Jaime Polger. Yeah, so Jaime? A-
0: so say Matt's at the University of Florida now, and you always have to think of the rules and regulations, but to me that just would be a natural decision where Mackenzie McDonald's gonna train at the University of Florida and the the coach uh Jaime, you know, so you know he 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 goes and he works and it's like okay so if, if whatever the title may be senior advisor I mean that, that he's going to go work and train so I, I just think that there there should right. be so much out of the box thinking where um, someone sent me a text today is Emma Radakuna Kuna if I'm pronouncing her name correctly she's on her fifth coach, yeah. fifth coach in 15 months and I yeah. I really think wow. whoever coached her in juniors I mean certainly I think tactics and a few things technically, but she is so good and she's so fast. And you know, how, how can someone have five coaches and you know, there's no, there's no connection from the, from one, all five coaches. I mean, Dimitrov had seven coaches in his first seven years. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it just, it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, it's one of those things just kind of adding to that. I mean, Thank you. And, you know, somebody can just, you know, even if you have a contract, you have a bad tournament, somebody could just be like, all right, well, thanks. But we're no longer going to work together. And then uh, you're looking for uh, somebody to work with, you know, mid-season or during the middle of a, you know, clay court or, you know, hard court swing. And uh, to me, it's, uh, I, I could definitely see myself uh getting back into the college uh college realm but again it'd have to be the right uh the right situation in the sense of um depends on how marissa and i are you know what situation we're in in the sense of you know if we're established and she has her you know has a good situation where maybe even one day she has her own practice you know and it's going to be tough for uh you know, just on the end of you think of it this way: to be an assistant, you have to, you know you have to pay your dues, and that takes time. And that would be another, possibly ten years, you know, of being assistant somewhere, and then uh, possibly moving around three or four more times.
0: I want to go back to um, I want to go back to one thought, but here's a a Ty Tucker thought for you. So, um, my son's playing for Ohio State, the Ohio State. And he was fortunate. He was in three out of four final fours and just played two years because he transferred there. So that means, you know, the indoor nationals and the outdoor nationals. So I, you know, I remember my son was a little shocked by this because as a parent, I went in and Ty you know, said, okay, he's calling me coach. He said, okay, coach, you're with us. And I, I didn't know any different. I was in the, the meetings and I was at the dinners and, and, um, you know, unfortunately I didn't see that many matches, but I saw quite a few. And. But with Ty, it wasn't the, you know, there's so many athletic directors at a place like Ohio State. So it wasn't the athletic director, but it was the, you know, number two, number three, one of the associates. And I said, well, right. you, you hired Ty as a very young guy. And I said, you know, he was one or two moves away from being a head coach at a place like this because he was very young when he started a head coach. Right. So it's like one of the greatest lines ever. So um, actually, John Daly, uh, Jeremy Wilson's brother, Mark. So I had, talked to John Daly, Mark's brother played, or Jeremy's older brother played at Ohio State. So, but Daly resigned at uh, the end of a semester, so Ty was the interim in January, which helped him out because he was the interim. But here's the line. The athletic director, a guy named Chris, used to, you told me uh, when they interviewed Ty, they asked him, said, what would you do if you didn't get the job at Ohio State? And this guy is ready for TV. He just looked right at him and said, I'd be mowing lawns at Ohio State. So, I love it. So then we, he leaves the room. It's like he's, he's this guy bleeds for Ohio State. We got to hire. Yeah. We got to hire this guy. But the, the point, I, the point one point, I wanted to go back, and you, know, you could certainly um, name player after player. I mean, Ben Donovan was a good tennis player. Is that with um, Dave Fish was really hoping that this would take place through the UTR, being more organized, more structured. You know, now I think it's a wild, wild west, and the entry fees are so high. And um, When someone is a really good tennis player, you know, they play college tennis, and they're not going to try to play pro. There's nowhere for them to go in the U.S. tennis-wise, and they start banging golf
1: balls. Mm. Yeah, no, it's 100%. <laughs> that's so true. And that's,
0: that's where there has to be something done. Uh, you know, I, I, I read just today where Noah Rubin is taking up pickleball you know and he really he's very very fast junior Wimbledon champion, and uh, yeah. you know he, he knows it's going to be a new venture for him. But you know he's 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 been very vocal about how the distribution of money is so difficult for the minor leaguers, if you will, the players playing futures playing challenges to make money. But one thing with Noah, he was playing at NC State, and I was uh, doing some tennis teaching at NC State, and it was. Uh, young guy we worked with for years, Victor Lillo. his sister, a scholar, Redina. We had Victor in on it too. So here's a Wimbledon champion coming in and Robbie Mudge was coaching. Robbie Mudge, very good athlete, Matt. had yeah. helped him quite a bit with his strokes. And, and I said, this is how you have to play this guy. And anyway, Robbie didn't follow my direction. He's a great guy, you know, college guy. Um, I think now all these years later, <laughs> he'd just be, be old enough, wise enough. Ruben came to the net one time off his serve and it was in singles. It wasn't in doubles. So he's in the building and fast. And, um, so with pickleball, um, I think that pickleball would be a way for people to go forward, but that's another thing that's happening now is that it's very social. It's a casual sport is really good college tennis players are flocking to, uh, pickleball.
1: Yeah. I've seen that. I've actually seen that of late. Even, uh, even tennis players, even, I mean, even guys who are established on the tennis side are, yeah. are trying to lean that way. No,
0: I think that, uh,
1: you know, professional.
0: I, you know, we mentioned, uh, say, Aiden Malik, Mason Vaughn, um, and you too. I mean, uh, just, there's so many other players that, that are, that are at Brookhaven, uh, ones that I've worked with and ones I haven't worked with. They're all, because they're taught to volley people that are taught to play tennis, the right way, all court game, not avoiding any strokes. They're going to be very good at pickleball. Be very good at yeah. pickleball. But Tennessee yeah, to, to, to have a commissioner for tennis, um, you know, it's like we have to do something to, uh, ha- help tennis grow, um, help tennis grow. Yeah.
1: But, uh, no, I mean, it's, that's, that's an amazing story though, about, uh, about how it'd be, uh, be mowing lawns at Ohio State, but, uh, I'd be mowing no, it's, Ohio uh, State. I, uh, <laughs> no, but I, I could definitely see my, I mean, it's a really special, uh, it's a really special avenue of tennis, especially on the coaching side. And I, I do think that there is a lot of upside and there is a lot of low hanging fruit that can, uh, that can be addressed. And I think, uh, you know, it's a special avenue where, you know, how many times or how many, yeah, how many times in tennis do you, uh, have a player who, is committing to, you know, in theory, right, is committing to coming and playing for you and is there. You know, you have a player for four years. And I feel like it's a really, uh, it's a really special time frame as well. You know, 18 to 23, and, you know, there's, it's a really, uh, competitive environment. And you're, as a head coach, you are kind of a CEO, and especially with all the new NLI rules and things like that, you truly are a, uh, you know, you are an entrepreneur, you are a CEO and, you know, you are helping these, uh, helping these student athletes. And I, you know, just my experience at Baylor, it was, it was amazing. Um, but sorry, just not to but just one more point, but on the other side of that, I, uh, I could see myself going on the junior on the uh, junior tennis side and developmental side as well, you know, and uh, just being at Brookhaven and seeing a lot of the, you know, things that are going on and, you know, in my experiences as well, you know, college is great. Um, it's, I think it's a great avenue, but I think the word development can sometimes get thrown around really loosely. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you need to be doing that from the get go. And, uh, because in college, a lot of times, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you're, you're working within somebody's game and, um, you know, and it's by the time you're in college, you know, to make some adjustments that need to be made, you know, it's like, well, I think we're, you know, why to be on the side of the junior development side, that would, that'd would be special too. It'd be just as awesome as it was to, um, to be in, you know, standing out there coaching and, you know, an NCAA final, I think it would be, I mean, really cool to, watch a player that maybe you coached whenever you were, whenever that player was, you know, 12 or 13 play in that moment, would also that would be a pretty surreal moment. And uh, they'd be prepared to play.
0: When you're coaching junior tennis players, you know, I think the parents uh, need to hear this is, you know, a lawyer, a lawyer is going to charge you, you know, you're on the clock, you're talking to the lawyer, you're on the clock and you're going to be charged when you're working with junior tournament players. You spend so much time, you know. So that's where if, if, if parents they, start, they question their bill, you, they, you spend so much time um, trying to educate the player and the parent. With, um, I think one point too. Uh, what, what's the name of the head coach at, at Baylor? Uh, Michael Woodson. Woodson. So you mentioned that he wins the NCAs, and it's just like Nick Saban in Alabama, or he's in the finals. He's in the finals. Finals. Yeah, so, final. but I mean you're there, you're in the finals and and uh championship match and Nick Saban, same thing is that they go to work right away. But I think their listeners need to hear what you said about him is that um, at these very elite schools like Texas and Baylor that you've been part of, uh, the coaches are recruiting at pro tournaments. You know, they're you know, so these these yeah. kids that are sweating bullets or a boy who's a nine five and you know thinks he's gonna you know, he's a senior and he's going to play uh, division one tennis. So there, that, that side of perspective, uh, I mentioned Nick White earlier. I've been working with him, training him to teach tennis, coach tennis and, and flatter that, you know, he calls me for advice. So I could say I'm his advisor and he was offered the job at Skidmore and they're building a new facility. And I said, you should take that job. I said, go do yeah. that. Go do that for 10 years. You're a young guy and build a culture, build a championship culture. With, with that, I think that um, if someone's a college coach, they can be a pillar in the community if they start, you know, within the rules, they're, they're running camps and they're running clinics. And um, so, I mean, I do, I do think that, it's, um, like say for yourself, you have the pedigree, the playing background. A lot of people that don't have, they didn't play at a Texas they're, they're not even going to be considered to coach uh, Division One tennis. My son Connor was offered a, a job where he didn't even apply. You know, I think mm. that people knew that he's, you know, Ty would say he's a funny guy, good in the locker room, and just out of the blue he gets a phone call a couple years ago, and would you want to be the assistant coach? And, um, yeah, I think that's something, too, that, uh, you know, it's, it comes back to your – first seven days or the seven months is that seven months? I mean, you could talk to Dion and, and Dave, but your seven months was like what we would call a tennis tech education. I mean, you were totally immersed in the information.
1: Um, yeah, I felt like it was, uh, it was, (laughs) I don't know if you could get much more immersed, you know, we were, uh, that was a special time. It was, uh, you know, I, I still look back on that and it was, uh, you know, that circuit, it was a crazy, you know, like I said before, you know, there's all this chaos going on outside, uncertainty, and we were, you know, we were in the bubble. We are in the bubble, drop hitting, forehands run around the track.
0: But, but again, uh, but the nuts and bolts of it, the, the rationale, yeah. um, you know. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's where, you know, tennis, it is an art, it is a science. You know, I'm not an artist, not a scientist, just a craftsperson is that, you know, if someone wants to be a carpenter, you know, typically they start off, uh, you know, they, they're taking the old demo, they knock a kitchen down, for example, and they're taking out the old cupboards and pulling out nails or sweeping sawdust. And yeah. and they're just around people, you know, like a Dion Kruppi, you know, I'd say a trench pro. Dave Anderson, same thing, is that you're just, you know, yeah, you need an architect, but you need people who can pound nails straight. and uh, For sure. With um But I have been pretty nice to you, off I haven't used that name. I know. Georgie Bailey. No, What's going on? I did see your father and you were, when Baylor was uh sat with him in the stands for a few minutes and I said don't be Yeah, he
1: uh yeah, he came in. Yeah, he came uh he came down last second. He I didn't think he was gonna be able to come but he's like, All right. I got, I got to, I got to check
0: that out. I said, don't, don't be offended. I, uh, I told him, I said, don't be offended if we change your kid's last name to Silveroff.
1: But yeah. What, he told me about that. He's like, what's that about? Number I two,
0: number like, uh, two, you're number two. I know. I became goldsmith. Nope. I, I made myself number one and you're number two. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think that, that you, you experienced it at a happy lane, maybe more so that, uh, I don't consider myself, I'm not really a tennis person. I come from the hockey background and that's where uh, the BS detector is much better. I'd say most tennis, tennis people don't have a very good BS detector. Um, But to just give people grief. And, and then, you know, you you want to get to the point where you're giving somebody a hard time and they love it. You know, then, then, you know, it's that sport. And I do think that we're way too politically correct. Um, I've touched upon that so many ways, even, you know, incoming freshmen, you know, and I understand during the recruiting process, um, it's kind of a romance. Like we're just, we're just going to show how here's our beautiful campus. It looks like an Olympic village, and you're going to get free Nike or free Adidas. And yeah, we travel first class. We do this. We do that. We you've got all these tutors and support people. Um, but I do think that they're very successful programs. You know, once that honeymoon is over, it's like they go to work.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember on my recruiting trip to Tech, they said the same thing where I was like, uh, yeah, we have Nike shoes. I was like, Coach, I'll wear whatever. Did you tell, did you say their shoes were free? I was like, I'll wear anything. <laughs> I was like, That's unbelievable. <laughs> I'll wear anything. But yeah, that's, uh, that is true, though. I mean, a lot of coaches are selling, selling, um, you know apparel and the shoes but it's, you know how many coaches are showing the players development in terms of the stroke development and how their players have improved I know that there are coaches who have but you know I just remember in my experiences it was you know a little bit more of the I guess image things in terms of the resources and things like that
0: I'll tell you a quick story Nicholas Thiel from Bermuda michael costa from michigan now costa had played at illinois and he's doing some training with us and he just said about nicholas Thule. he goes you will not get that kid to play college tennis and i said costa i'll get that kid to beat you so you know he did play at unc asheville but with that um some of these kids that i've coached in the years gone by they really love tennis they want to go to a university and i say okay i know the coach and um, I'll call him up and tell him where you are with your tennis, and maybe he gives you a guaranteed spot on the team because he keeps 12 people. And, and uh, I said, but I don't think you're going to play there. So it just worked out where I was with this young guy, Nicholas Thule, on the Texas A&M campus. And, yeah. um, and that was so good for him because it, it, we were running the junior college tennis team and the, the junior college nationals were at A&M. Is that he just, he just realized that, uh, he goes, no, I'm not going to play. He watched the A and M practices. Um, there was a kid named Ryan Newport that I had worked with a little bit. Um, Steve Denton had sent him to me, but he actually went to UNC Asheville because they had a very they had a shortage of players, and so he went. in his first year, first year he played singles, and and uh, but he knew going in that they had a shortage of players. But you know, I think Braden used to say that you want to go where you wanted, go where you're needed. And I think that term, you know, uh, you got to blo- you, How's it go? You got to uh, blossom where you're planted. And I do think that you know people are looking at the, the other side of the fence. The grass is greener over there, and and you you can get better anywhere. You can get better anywhere. But um,
1: absolutely. Why
0: don't you give us a closing comment, uh, Georgie baby? It's been great to have you on. I think we've touched well, upon quite a
1: uh, few things. Uh, no, I mean I feel like we covered. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. Um, just thanks for having me on. I mean, there's been, I mean, there's been so many, I mean, I've been listening to the podcast. There've been so many people on before and I hope that, uh, I've learned a lot and I hope that, you know, if there's anything that people can take, uh, for, at least from my experiences, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, even if you take like a couple, a couple snippets, but I think that just closing thought is just, in general for the junior players out there and parents, just uh, at least from my experiences, just keep building. And, you know, just if, if you want to, if you truly just want to keep, keep tennis at the floor, that's great. But and if you want to earn a scholarship, play college tennis, you can do it. I mean, but you just have to keep dedicating yourself and just lean into the information and, you know, stay focused on the goal. I think that, uh, you know, it's like I said before the, the, there's so much anxiety uh, in the game and there's a lot of I think we're all focused sometimes on the wrong things. And uh, at the end of the day, it's the game you got to master the information and just lean into it as hard as you can. And I think you'll be, you'll be able to achieve whatever you want out of the sports. Just what are you willing to put into it? But I mean, it's, I mean, I just want to say thank you to you, Steve. I mean, it's been, you know, you've really opened my eyes to the game in a completely different light. I mean, I never really thought of the game and really any depth <laughs> before meeting you. It's just more of experiences, and I'm glad that at least I, I have some knowledge and some information, you know, and I can now at least help other people. And, you know, I'm starting to help, I think, where before I was just, you know, a hitting dummy. So uh, and unfortunately, you know, I forgot what the exact quote was, but you've ruined the game for me in a lot of ways because I can't really look at it in any, you know, you've ruined, I forgot what the quote was or the context, but uh, like you he, ruined it. Yeah. That's the story. I talked to you. Him. ruined it for me. So <clears throat> this week, I talked to Chad,
0: Chad Berryhill about a young guy from Japan. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of D1 players should be calling me up about it. But, um, yeah, so Barry Hill said to Dave Secker, people listen to our podcast will start putting all the pieces together. Is that uh, Barry Hill said, uh, Smith ruined it for you too? He my name yeah. For the third person. And uh, Secker goes, Oh, you know, you guys fall out, whether well, you guys have a problem you don't get along. And he goes, No, you just, um, he ruins tennis for you. Because once you, you know, once you, he, he says, Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you just see these kids who have inefficient strokes. doesn't, it just takes, you know, like Vic Braden, just, just feed him one ball. You know, I mean, you know, fair fair enough, watch somebody play for five minutes and, you know, the kid's been playing for five years and they've got a palm up serve and their their grips are all inefficient. And, and that's, that's what the great base is all about is uh, we want to try to share information that we've accumulated over the years and it it will stand the test of time, you know, because it's
1: based on physics. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, George, it's been
0: great. I appreciate it. Um, we'll, we'll get together down the road, but thanks again.
1: No, thank you so much for having me on. This has been awesome. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Adios. Good night. Adios.
0: All right. That was, that was a marathon. That was a marathon. I hope that, uh, um, you know, people can make the time during the course of a week. We only do these once a week and you know, you're doing your laundry, put a headset on, and you listen 10 minutes here and you're um, in your car for 10 minutes. And just, by the end of the week, you can knock it out. But a uh, lot, of, lot of insightful information. And a young guy, 27 years old, and his, his story through juniors to college, and he's played some pro tennis. And I <clears throat> think with um, uh, that, we need to say goodnight over and out Thanks for listening. Another podcast in the books. Thanks, George.